Roman, Countryman, and Mommy your The lady protests too much again. Now, wherefore, I'll bow. To be or not to be. numbers and there's no way to relate them but when you see it uh, geometrically that they're connected via the pyramid proportions then it's more beautiful picture it's easier to see and someone has drawn this into the punctuation on the sonnet's cover to tell you exactly the same thing okay guys welcome back to the grimerica show uh we are going to be chatting with alan green a little bit later about all sorts of stuff. This one goes long. It's fun. Uh, Alan was a real treat. And you guys should enjoy this one, I should say. It's going to be over three hours, so you might not enjoy that part. Probably choose into your other podcast, but whatever. Fuck them. Um, anyway, as always, the co-hostess with the mostest, Graham, the hairy man like being Dunlop. I also could have went with Puck Wedgie. Why do you, when do you say hairy man like? I don't know when he said hairy man like being. It just made me. Oh, man like. I think he meant legs. No, man. Oh. Okay. Yeah. It's about the puck wedgie. What was puck wedgie again? It was, it was a, a midget. A was a, no, no, like, no. Sorry, not a midget. You can't say was, midget. Jesus. A, <laughs> you're not allowed to say that anymore? No, you can't say midget. It was a hobbit like creature. I don't think hobbit's much better. What? What do you mean? It's a dwarf. What's the difference between a dwarf and a hobbit like that? I Actually, I think you can call it hobbit because you can't ever call a person a hobbit. Well, no, it's not. A, it's another species, like like an elf. <laughs> <laughs> what is that so funny for? Oh, I just watched it like a couple weeks ago. Just the movie Elf. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's like, the funniest. Oh. <laughs> Santa. <laughs> The Santa know you're here? <laughs> <laughs> Call me an elf one more time. <laughs> Sidebar. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Especially for a PG, you know what I mean? That I can watch with my kids. Yeah. It's hard. That's tough to pull off. Yeah, Will Ferrell does such a good job in that. <laughs> anyway, if you haven't seen Elf, go see Elf. I guess you don't have to go see Elf anymore. You can probably just get it on Netflix. So how you been? How good. was he said he practiced last week? Uh, it was good. Yep, yeah. had a good meditation and stuff, and then we went out. We went out actually in the in Plus January warm, right? in Calgary. Plus ten or something. Well, not no, I mean not at night. It was about six degrees or probably something. So we didn't go out for very long, but yeah, it was good. I made yeah. a pretty kick-ass snow fort on Sunday. Really? Yeah, the snow was almost too wet to make a snowman. Or snowballs. We were trying to roll snowballs. It wasn't working. So what I did is I had an old uh, rectangle, like a little rectangle uh, plastic container. And we are just filling it up and making little blocks. Like an igloo. Kind of, yeah. That's what Madison wanted to make was an igloo. But it's just too, you know, you can't make an igloo for them. Why? It could come crumbling down on No, it. really? I don't think you're not supposed to do that anymore. It's funny because I was actually talking about how when I was a kid, I remember I was me and my cousin... Next to my neighbor's house where we piled up all the snow from our driveway. 
up against a dryer vent. And then we had tunneled it all out and had a little fucking space Forward in there. And everything. Yeah, and the fucking dryer vent was coming out. And then I think their basement window was in the back corner. So if the light was on, you had a little bit of light in there. So it was the dryer vent for heat? Yeah. It was just random. We tunneled in there and we were like, this is great. Because the dryer, if they were doing laundry, it heated up the fort. How old were you then? Uh, probably like seven or eight. Yeah. Cause I remember in Quebec where I grew up, I was about six or seven or eight probably. And we'd have so much snow on the side of the road that you could, like for me, it felt like it was a store. You'd make story high forts, right? Where you climb up these little steps onto the top and then you could build a tunnel through there and you could go in and out of tunnels. And yeah, I remember like when I was a kid back home, there was like always kind of that pile of snow on the side of the road. Because it was a small town, so they didn't, like, plow it away. Like, Main Street, they just plowed that shit right into the middle of the road. But nowadays, you're not supposed to, because I think too many of those fuckers caved in on kids. Really? I had too many little... Too many little, little kids kid traumas uh, in Canada, Canadian winters. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder about yeah, I that. Yeah, I see some guy just patented this little thing you can get that you put inside there that holds it up. Have you seen that little meme with the little kid and he's got like this helmet on? No, does he have a helmet and he's got scrapes all over him and he's like, this is a kid from the 80s? Like, we used to just go out and wipe out on your bikes and ride around all day and Pretty just much. get hurt outside, you know? You're too young for that. Man. No, that's what I did. Well, I was from a small town too, right? So like I say, when I was like, I remember when I was like younger than 10, just being out in the fucking bush. Building forts, like the bush bush. Building forts in the bush? Yeah. Like wading through swamps, holding our clothes up over our head, wading through swamps and shit. Did you ever find old playboys and stuff in the bush? Oh, yeah. 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 Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think right. we talked about this once. Yeah. I did too. Yeah. That was a thing, for yeah. sure. Those days are gone. Little pages that are almost worn out completely. You can yeah. just barely see anything like left on them. Careful with them. <laughs> That's right. You take the good ones home. I never took one. No, home. I didn't either, no, actually. Okay. <laughs> so, what do you got for me, buddy? Anything? I need to do the social media segment later. You want to do a social media segment? Yeah, well, I've got uh, like some listeners sending in emails, which is great. I love it. And um, I've got a couple. I've got some feedback, like a spam gram, and I love the show, and a trip report. Maybe we should just jump into support right away. Support? We sure. To, we were wanting to push that lately. Because uh, because it helps so much. Yeah, it helps so much, and it seems like if we wait till later, sometimes it does. A lot of these don't even listen to the intro anyway, but which is fine. You can skip forward fine. to the interview. There's show notes that say exactly when the interview starts. But we've been trying to drum up some more supporters. So if you guys can find it in your hearts or in your, or in your wallets, to check out GoAmerica.ca/support and check out all the different options there of doing a one-time donation or, or the monthlies are absolutely fantastic. You can do as low as a buck a month all the way up to 30 bucks a month and those help us manage our expenses as well as upgrade and, and fun things like that. Um, or you can spam gram or you can sign people up for the newsletter. I was saying uh, in another show that it's less, it's between one and 2% of all the listeners that are actually signed up for the newsletter if we could get that number into double dish digits, it would be fantastic for all the hard work Justin does there. So head over to grimeamerica.ca slash news, sign up for the newsletter, uh, review the show. Um, what else? No, you could, there's tons of stuff. You could send a, something to the P.O. box. You could yeah. leave a voicemail. You could connect with Darren on Twitter or me on Instagram. That's right. Send marijuana to the... No, don't do no, that. No, don't do that. Uh, 
if you do make it inconspicuous. Send in your reports and your sightings and your trip reports and lucid dreams and all that. That's always fun. Yeah. Go into the show notes. There's a whole grounds got a whole honey do we do list there. Go through that. Do all that shit. You only have to do it once and then you can consider yourself paid up. Most of the other shows have ads. Like we don't want to go that route. No. And we don't want to do paywalls either. We don't want to do bonus shows where you guys only get half the interview unless you sign up and we don't, we just don't want to do any of that shit. So we'll just uh, continue our vow of poverty and huge thanks to the people that do. I mean, it's not like there's none. There's a bunch of people that do support us now and they help us cover the expenses and all that stuff. So yeah. at least most of them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, do all that stuff and then we can get into... You like that jingle right off the bat, eh? I like, yeah, that one hit home right away. Big thanks to uh, Felix for that one. Um, I actually got another surprise jingle that Felix sent me for Graham a little bit later. I'm not super stoked to play it, but I'll play it. Because it completes his drink jingle trilogy. Um, so, I'm going to go to the face bags first, because people on Facebook are always complaining that we'd ever talk about Facebook. Really? Yeah. Facebook really? doesn't get much love from the show, because we aren't big Facebook fans. Yeah. We really aren't. No. But there is a Facebook page. Go to that like it or something. I think it's almost at 1,500 likes or something like that. But what the fuck? What does it just play <laughs> on? Does it just play them in order? <laughs> fuck. Um, so I posted on the Facebook on Saturday, where do you listen to the show? How did you find the show? And Team D-Ron or Team Graham? Who asked you to do that? No, I just did it. That was your own idea? Yeah, some guy was... No, some guy was James, bu- that sounds like it was No, James somebody was bugging that. me on Twitter that um, we need to ask more questions and, and be more inclusive when you're, instead of just posting stuff. Links on and Facebook? Stuff like that. Yeah. And Twitter, they say post oh. questions, force engagement. Oh, who's saying that? I can't remember. It's just some some listener. Like a, that's like also a marketing strategist yeah, that yeah, you hired, exactly. or no? He's just some Twitter guy okay. that just recommended it. Oh, that listens to the show, and he was like, "If you engage, you tend to do." So I tried it, and actually, the Twitter gets lost too quick, so I'm not going to go there. But the Twitter was pretty good, and the Facebook we got like 20 comments, which is quite a bit for a Facebook. So we have. Uh, from Shannon, iTunes podcast, and Team Mr. Carlson, hooked ever since. From friend of the show, Tanner. Overcast, primarily at work, and referred by a friend, Nathan Bryson. Another friend of the show. Uh, from Tommy, on the bus, via no agenda, and don't make me choose. <laughs> James says, he's Team Zeus. And I said, I'm Team Your Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine <laughs> Elaine Southeast Texas to and from work on Spotify. Uh friend of the show Dave Spotify, Z- wow. Friend of the show Dave Zed. Everywhere I go, somehow I found the show on only the second episode and was hooked then. And I'm not picking a side other than take the shot. Oh. So he likes us both, but he wants to shoot Sasquatch. Thanks, David. Yeah, it's crazy that some people have been around that long. Coming up on four years in May. 
someone heard us on podcast, which I assume. Oh, so someone actually found us in the podcast app. Crazy. Lindsay stumbled on your Rick Simpson episode and have been listening ever since. Great. I'm with David and not picking either, but she's saved Sam Squatch. I guess Lindsay could be a him too. Uh, from Freighter at work, Twitty, Twitter, 50% D, 50% G. Jeff, Stitcher at first, now iTunes, night driving, and don't take the shot unless he's going to pop your head off. <laughs> Alan, where depends, iPad app, iTunes at the desk, etc. I forget how I learned, probably Carlson. I can't remember being born either. That's all for now. It's in the 60s. Time for hot chocolate. The 60s is hot chocolate weather? Android app from Dave, Android app, podcast addict, whilst I work, expanded perspectives recommended you. It takes two to make a team, so Darham or Grarin, go team. <laughs> uh, from Glenn, in the car on my way to work, my mate told me, I can't pick between you both. It wouldn't be the same without any other personality combo. You both feed off each other brilliantly. Must be you, must be uh, UK. Why brilliantly? Brilliantly? Yeah. And mate. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Zuger listens wherever. James's mom introduced it to him. <laughs> and Team D Ron. <laughs> From Steve, I heard about Grammarica on Micah's show when the show first started. I've been hooked ever since. I usually listen in on in the shop when I'm out tinkering. It's been well over a month since Graham said African or European to the guests. <laughs> D Ron and the guests didn't get it. <laughs> I laughed hysterically and kept chuckling for about two weeks. Oh, I love every it. time I thought about it. Okay, we'll have to come back to that. I'm just too old. Ha ha ha. Uh, I even heard the mushroom episode. Loved it. By the way, the mushroom episode is still available by special recommendation. I have a link for it because uh, okay. the other gram gainer over in uh, UK yeah. sent it to me, so I, I was able to get it. I just put it on private. Uh, Ilse. I listen while commuting on the road by bicycle. Jesus. The crackpod father name-dropped you a couple of times during the donation segments. Don't know about D-Ron or G-Ram. Can't really make a decision solely based on names. Hmm. I'm D-Ron, by the way. If that's the um, Gram. G-Ram. G-Ram. So that was the Facebooks. And then I'll go to the YouTubes quick just for fun. No, you're going to YouTube? Jeez, I haven't yeah, been there in a ben, while. The moment you guys started talking about planets, I knew immediately you were all disinformation shills. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I don't remember how I found this channel, but I look forward to your uploads. Always entertaining, entertaining banter and deep thoughts. Cheers and be well. Uh, I think that's all I'm going to do from there. Oh, here we go. Great chat as always. Can't wait to join the monthly subscription team when I start my new job. You guys are the shit. To Boats and Hose Dunlop. Huzzah. Nice. Nice. Who's that? I don't know, but Sasquatch sitting on a squatty potty. That's nice. Randall is great. It's unfortunate he has to lower himself to do shows with the likes of these asinine clowns. I said check out our other four chats. Wow, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we had someone ask if we could make available your Mars One application video. Oh my God, get out of Do here. Do we still have it? No. Nowhere? No. We should have uploaded that to YouTube. Uh, I think that's all I got. Yeah, that's all I got. 
That's not bad for YouTubes. No, well, I skipped over some of them. There's some pretty bad trolling there. Yeah, I don't go. That's okay. At least the YouTube comments don't uh, rate us on iTunes. This video is worthless. I was going to check out your other videos, but I won't waste my time. You were just jerking off and acting like douchebags the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so annoying and pointless. I said, how'd, which, you, how'd wh you know I was jerking off? <laughs> <laughs> which one was that? Which which video? That was Pepe. It's a nice balance. How should we act when you're talking about fucking Cack? the frog meme and cack and all that? I mean, holy. Who cares? It's good. Yeah, it's good balance. It's good to get hate, man. Especially yeah. the ridiculous ones. Yeah. Remember the first one? We went a long time, and then we just got that one. I was like, you guys are fucking blah, blah, blah. Filthy Masonic oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, check out all that stuff. Head over to YouTube, call us names. And, yeah. Right on. Well, I got uh, I got some feedback, too. Do you want me to well, keep doing it? That's the end of my Save segment. it for next week? or No, no. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm done with this social okay. media jangle. Okay. So, uh, what do you want? I got Love the Show, Spam Gram, or Trip Report? Hmm. Spam Graham, actually. American Trip Report. I'm going Graham everywhere now. <clears throat> when I'm texting with Kevin and everyone, I'm just dropping it. James has got me. Because James refuses to spell your name right in a text. Right. So, I don't... You know, do you ever have an email that goes really long length, um, horizontally? Yeah. So I don't know how long this email is, and I don't know why it's showing up on this computer like that. So, anyways. Well, I've never seen it on a computer. So I got to scroll back and forth, so this might be a bit of a... <laughs> it's like a typewriter? Yeah. So this is from Bjorn, who who doesn't think I'll be able to pronounce his name right. And it's probably Rindal, Bjorn Rindal. See if that was right. Hey guys, I've been listening to the show for a few weeks now and thought it was time I tell you how I started. Oh, that's interesting. That's what you're asking. I have to give you a little background first before I get into the trip report itself. I was born into a very religious family. My dad's a pastor. My grandparents are missionaries and it goes on and on. I was never a good Christian, but I believed it my whole life. It was all I was ever told most of my life. I got into drug use when I was younger, and after a few years, I went to Christian rehab for over a year. The program was more of a brainwashing program. I went to church every day for 14 months. I continued to live a Christian life until about six months ago when I started to wonder how I could be, how I could be punished if I picked the wrong religion. I still believed, but wasn't sure what side of the fence I was going to be on. I never went back to doing hard drugs, but I do smoke weed now. So for Christmas, my friend brought me, bought me an eighth of shrooms. I haven't done shrooms in some yeah. years. Bliss. So I tried bliss. to make myself comfortable in my house so the trip would go well. I ate two grams of the shrooms. See, this is what's happening now. Eight, two Are grams. you scrolling back, scrolling back yeah. over? Yeah. Are you, side. Were you on the shrooms when you sent the email, Bjorn? No, I don't think so. He says, I ate two grams of shrooms and in about an hour or so I felt... I felt them kick in. The colors coming from everywhere were so visit, vivid and I was feeling pretty good. The longer time I started overthink what? The longer time went on, the more I started overthinking everything. Life, death, happiness. 
I realized the God of the Bible couldn't be true. The evidence suggesting otherwise was too much to ignore. I realized I was just a highly intelligent animal and that I was going to die one day. If I had no God and I'm not special, then what is the point? I came to the realization my life was just slipping away and I wasn't taking advantage of it. I always thought, if there's another life, then why try so hard in this one? I felt terrible. I just watched TV and shut my brain off. My phone has become a part of me. This scared me to death. And it made me feel suicidal. And I've never felt like that in my life. The next day, I found your podcast. And in listening to you guys, knowing there were other people out there who were woken to everything, I now know that part of, I now know that the point of life is this life. And if it's the only life, if it's the only one I have to live, I have to take care of my body and get the most out of my life. I haven't watched TV since that day, but I do listen to your podcast, so I don't know if that counts. No, it doesn't count. I don't. I think it, I personally think it's okay to even watch TV. Just don't watch it all the time. Yeah. What I did personally is just got rid of the cable. Yeah. And then when now you binge watch, and now I binge watch. Like sometimes <laughs> I'll do a weekend where I'll watch a lot of stuff, but for the most part, my TV. Like the kids might be watching cartoons and stuff, but my TV doesn't come on at the earliest is like maybe eight o'clock, eight by eight or nine o'clock. The TV might go on for something that the I want to watch. watch. Yeah. And even that is mostly just something for background noise while the girls are sleeping. So like I bet you I've watched planet earth about a hundred times through all 10 episodes. Right. Because that's my go-to. It's perfect. I've seen it enough times. I don't get caught up in it. Yeah. See, that's different than, I don't even almost consider that TV. You're almost just putting on some, but entertainment, I can still get right? into like, it. To me, the worst for when I, when I used to just have cable on in the background because I wanted something on. Now I just don't put it on anymore. Right. Yeah, because I, I don't want to see the, the ads and the kids yeah, and all that. Ads, it's just so. unbelievable, right? It's just I don't have oh, ads, so that's what I can just throw on the Netflix. If you throw on Planet Earth, it'll play for like three and a half hours yeah. without a fucking. And it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, but then I do. I mean, I got my shows. I got my shows I watch. It's always sunny in Philadelphia is one of them. But what I'll do on that is I'll wait till the whole season comes out, and then binge watch it. Yeah. So then he says. uh you guys have given me hope for the future. It means a lot. I gave you guys a donation, so please keep doing what you're doing. I don't know if you want to use this or not, but I wanted to let you know that you're doing something greater than yourselves in your podcast. Wow. Thanks, Bjorn. Yeah, thanks. Man. I hope you're doing well, good. and I'm glad you sort of... Uh, and it's similar to the other trip report we had where this the guy was um, doing some either microdosing or is on... LSD or mushrooms or something. And he just had this realization. It was a health realization. Again, it's like get healthy. And he stopped drinking Dr. Pepper or eating or something like that. And it was just some little realization that if you're sober, it probably wouldn't have that effect, but somehow right. it has that effect and that lasts. And it gives you this, you know, what one epiphany, a silly one that I had that stuck with me from mushrooms is running the water. Because because really I don't I don't I don't want my water unless it's summer and it's hot out I don't want my water to be super cold, and here like right now I turn my water on and you wait fucking twenty seconds your water's got to be like maybe a couple degrees above freezing. I've been showering in it. Have you? Yeah. Like when I wash my face, I splash my face every morning and it's like pow. Yeah. But um, 
Now I've lost my train of thought. Well, you were letting the water run for some crazy reason. Oh, yeah. So I've always done that. It's just been a thing that whenever I'm getting a drink of water, I let it run. And in my head, it was always just, you know, to, to clear out that bit of pipe. Really? Yeah. And then when, I remember one time I was on mushrooms and I went to get a drink of water and I was letting it run. And I was like, well, wait a second. It's just the shit that was further down the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, now I just wow. into my cup. Wow. Not nearly as profound, but... Uh, oh, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Sometimes on mushrooms, you just get those little things and they just become part of you. I wonder if it's, I mean, by, being by yourself would play, play plays a role too because you spend a lot of time fucking around and joking. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, sure, or being when, paranoid When you're about by yourself, you're just kind of, less time paranoid about what your friends think. Well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm super careful about who I eat shrooms with now just because of that. Yeah. So you don't get that weird anxiety because that's yeah. not fun for anyone. Yeah. But if you come to uh, Canada Bjorn, I will uh, eat some mushrooms with you anytime, buddy. <laughs> Maybe we could do another Graham America psilocybus where everyone's on mushrooms. Except for Graham. Except for Graham. He's the uh, chaperone. 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 What? All right. What else you got? One more? I got, well, I got Love the Show and Spam Graham. Well, might as well just do them all. Okay. Start with... Uh, this is from Kristen. Hi, I've been listening to your show for a while. And thought it was high time that I leave feedback. And now I feel like I've read this already. Darren, you got to tell me if I have. But I don't think this counts as synchronicities, and Darren certainly wouldn't think so. But I've been traveling around India, and I keep meeting and staying with people who have knowledge over the exact things that I hope to gain more knowledge from. I've been reading about yogis and God realization and reincarnation and universal consciousness and souls. What is the self? What is God? What the hell are we all doing here? What is reality? And it seems like the universe has opened up and guided me to all sorts of intelligent people who can further my journey. I don't know what it is. A blessing for sure. And amongst all of this, when I don't have internet and I have downloaded podcasts from Grimerica, which makes me just oh so happy. I love the style and content of your show. I love the inquisitive, open-minded nature of Graham and the sometimes brash Darren. Keep it up, you too. It is greatly appreciated. Much love from India. Nice. Thank that's you. the guy in India. No, I think uh, Kristen, that's uh, probably not a guy, but uh, I don't know. Could be a Zer or a Zed or a... Zed? Yeah. Actually, I think we have a few listeners in India. Oh, yeah, and I promised James I'd give a shout-out to the Uruguay or Uganda listener. Oh, right on. We have one? Yeah. In Uruguay or, or Uganda? Uganda. No, we have a few in Uruguay. I forget what we were talking about. He's like, you got to give a shout out to that guy. One of my oldest friends was from Uganda. He was the first, his dad was the first family to Canada from Uganda. Really? Yeah, in the 80s. Shout out to, maybe that's him. Shout out to <laughs> Karim Harani, my old buddy. You went home? <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? Karim. Karim Hamani? Haran Harani. Harani? Yeah, smart dude. Super smart. Nice. Yeah. All right, buddy. So yeah, I get to do see this one without the jingle, right? Which one? There's no jingle for Love the Show. Love the Show. Hey, I've been listening to your show for a while now. Like a lot of your listeners, I found you through the Randall Carlson episode, which was awesome. Thanks, Randall. 
Yeah, even though we we really were just a couple of jerks and don't know how Randall can stoop down our ass and I clown. The funny thing is, Randall turned out to be a real good friend of the show. Yeah, he's great. I love the beginning of your show when you two just riff together about random shit. Some of your guests are completely out to lunch, so I'm impressed you guys still have them, still let them talk half the time. LOL. It's nice to listen to a quality podcast from Alberta since I'm from Cold Lake. I sent a $40 donation to help keep the lights on in the igloo since the carbon tax is going to make it more expensive. True that. I haven't even really come to grips with that yet. Finally, I'll give you a little synchro, although it's kind of morbid though. My wife and I have a farm and someone dropped off two kittens, which made the cat count three in the farmhouse. We live in another house around the corner. My wife decided we needed to get rid of the cats in the farmhouse and found a home for the two kittens. The night they were picked up, the third cat was hit by a car. Did the universe solve our cat problem? (laughs) Anyways, keep up the good work. Go deep. That's from Ian. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, if you're ever in Calgary, come by and check out the igloo, man. Hey, or if I'm ever in Cold Lake. Where's Cold Lake? Up north somewhere? Yeah, I don't really know. My Alberta. cousin lives there. Oh, on the he he's uh, flies in the air force. Well, he used to. Now he like teaches and shit. Cool. But I I've been meaning to go up there. Yeah. Take the kids up there. I think because I think in the summer there's good fishing and shit. It's like a lot like home. Right. Hot lot cold lake a lot like Red Lake. Yeah. Nice. Both cold. Yeah. Is it? No, I don't know. I've I've only been to Cold Lake like three times when I was working on the rigs. Cool. Worked out good because I'd get my LOA and I'd just go stay at my cousin's house. Oh, yeah. And they'd give you a hundred bucks a day for hotel and food. Oh, nice. pocketed it. Yeah. Yeah. So is that it? That's all the fuck we got? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we got the regular stuff too that I usually like to try and surprise me with. Oh, yeah. I forgot I wanted to play the... uh... Darren and Graham going deep. It's a profound UFO quote of the week. All right, so this is from the CIA document dump again, Darren. CIA? Yep, CIA. Yeah, you caught that, eh? And it's from 17th of February, 1967. And it's a memorandum for the Director of National Photographic Interpretive Center. And the subject is a photo analysis of UFO photography. And it says, this memo is in response to project number 66120-7, submitted by that perform a photo analysis of photographs imaging alleged UFO. So it goes into this. It's quite, it's like a three-page document here. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it talks about the photo and when it was taken and the image quality and all that kind of stuff. And then it goes on to talk about there's four assumptions in the photograph. The UFO UFO was at a distance of 0.25 miles from camera situated, da 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 The measurements supplied by Major Niels are correct. Photographs shown in detachment are full format, da 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 And then it gives us some artists' rough conceptions of the UFO, along with average dimensions obtained from mensural analysis of the photograph shown in attachments one and two. So it gets into quite a bit of depth here. And then I just figured I'd read the conclusion. Because, you know... UFOs don't exist, right? That's right. According to the mainstream narrative. In conclusion, it should be noted that all of the information contained in this memorandum deals with 
quantitative or dimensional information obtained from calculations based upon a large number of assumptions. The qualitative or subjective analysis of the imagery is not treated because of the lack of background knowledge on UFO imagery. This office cannot shed any light on the authenticity of this alleged UFO from this photo analysis. There is no definitive evidence that this photograph is a hoax. On the other hand, for one to assume that this object is a UFO is equally as dangerous. There are too many unanswered questions to label the probable cause of this sighting as anything but undeterminable. For example, the degraded image quality of the helicopter with compared to the UFO is suspect when considered that the helicopter was closer to the camera stationed when photographed. Likewise, the crispness of the edge gradient of the black band on the UFO is good considering the distance at which the object was photographed. Also, the fact that the tail section of the UFO was photographed in each case with the same cross section exposed casts some suspicion on the authenticity of the UFO. However, each of the above facts can be explained by various reasons, and because of these reasons, the photo analysis of this UFO photograph has resulted in inconclusive answers. It's a hoax. There you have it. The CIA says inconclusive in this memorandum from the CIA website, CIA.gov. I say hoax. How can the helicopter be more degraded than the UFO is farther away? I didn't say that. Oh, it's photoshopped in that motherfucker. <laughs> photoshopped in 1967? That's right. Secret government CIA Photoshop. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's... Oh, wait, I gotta... That's right. Don't you have a special I'm jingle? I'm gonna play the jingle and then we'll be done. Just hold it up to the mic. <laughs> Snow fucking Jack just <laughs> drives me crazy all the time. I swear I'm gonna sell this fucking thing and go back to a six. After the big fuss I made to get work to buy it for me. Do you have a dongle? I lost it. And I bought two other ones, and they both broke. I bought two cheap ones. Anyway, I'll find this jingle here. Another one from Felix Cat. This one won't be getting much play. <laughs> I love the little Chewbacca squealing in the background after the gunshot yeah. sound. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And you, and you make fun of me because you love me. That's what it is. That's pretty funny. <laughs> wasn't one of your wasn't one of your quotes from one of our listeners like, "Don't you can't make fun of Graham because I make fun of him." Yeah, yeah, that's, that's when funny. James was in here trying oh, to make fun of you. All right, yeah, that's right. All right, guys, enjoy the chat with uh, Alan. It's a long one. It's a fun one. Uh, yeah, he's made it. some crazy discoveries, man. He's really out there doing some crazy, uh, what, what's that guy again? Uh, Tom Hanks in like, uh, what's that show? Yeah, again? yeah, that's right. He's like the... Uh, Why is it not coming to me now? Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code, yeah, he's kind of... But with... Um, like the real, with the monkeys. No, I'm just hey, kidding. hey, with the monkeys. Yeah, enjoy the chat, Shakespeare guys. is what you're going to say. Shakespeare. Yeah.
enjoy the chat with Shakespeare, the fake spear. And uh, that's it. Enjoy the chat. <laughs> So tonight we've got Alan Green with us, and I want to do a big shout-out to Matt Blake, one of our listeners who connected us together. And Alan's, uh, he's had this fascinating life. I can't wait to get into this. We're going to talk a bit about his last 12 years where he's kind of been obsessed and researching uh, some stuff around Shakespeare, and he's connecting uh, the pyramids and some mathematical codes and some poetic codes, and he's actually done some sneaky little research and in churches while he's been playing music and doing radar scans in the dark and it's fascinating stuff and then in the 80s he had a he had a top 30 hit song under the uh pseudonym arlen day which i swear i remember that i am an 80s kid after all and uh before that he he was uh interestingly enough he was traveling around with the monkeys and he wrote a couple books books about the monkeys and he originally he uh he didn't really like the monkeys or shakespeare and inevitably he ended up being slightly obsessed or uh, with both these topics so it'll be interesting to see how he kind of found his spiritual path in the 80s and how he got into all these mysteries so don't want to say too much alan but there's uh there's lots to cover here welcome to the show thank you privilege to be here i'm happy to uh share all this with you I got to say, thanks uh, for putting that really interesting website together. I think, what is it, To Be or Not To Be is the name of it. And I went through it all and reading some of your blogs and following your mystery there about how you um, uncovered some interesting stuff about Shakespeare. So I don't know where – we want to start with some of the fresh the fresh mysteries that you've uh, you've started uncovering. And you've got, you've got a couple books just out and another couple coming out, I think, in, in 2017, right? That's about it, yeah. So the the website, no doubt you'll have it on your link, but just to be accurate, because most people think when I say to be or not to be org, they assume it's got numbers in it. <laughs> and I always say, no, no, just the way he wrote it, to be or not to be dot org. <laughs> so, that was still um, available? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bought it a long time ago. It was a bit of it was a bit of a hefty price, but it was well worth getting because it's you know that's utterly unforgettable. Unfortunately, to be or not to be dot com uh, is available too for half a million. I think so. I wasn't quite flush enough to do that. <laughs> I was gonna grab. I think it was one time I was gonna grab podcast dot com. I, I was so naive. It was when I first started venturing into. We started doing web design. I was like, ah, 
you know, if I had podcast.com, then whenever someone Googled podcast, you know, it could point to Grand America <laughs> somehow. But he wanted a million or three million. He wanted three million. Oh yeah. Well, these are, these guys are out there fishing. You know, it was it was a good idea to, yeah. <laughs> to be a monster at the, in the early stages. But uh, people always find their way around it. You notice every movie. You know, the, the, it says so and so so and so the movie <laughs> because presumably uh, as soon as they come out, people grab them. Eh? That's there's probably yeah. people that just sit around and wait. Oh, boom. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there are. <laughs> okay. Um, so first of all, I would say uh, to your listeners that this is that there are two parts to the codes and the story of their discovery um, that I'm going to uh, tell you about. Uh, six years I spent on each part. So in other words, I spent six years di- discovering poetic codes by Shakespeare. I'll tell you why later. And then when I thought my whole job was over, all of a sudden it shifted and Shakespeare's talking a lot in in code about the Great Pyramid. And I I know that sounds outrageous, but it's it's absolutely true. And I got into it and I realized, oh my God, he's pointing us to the Great Pyramid. So I then had six years on really purely mathematical codes and then here I am now. So I had just given a talk at CPAC. That's the Conference on Precession and Ancient Knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what led somebody there to tell you guys about my work. So um, that was a nice fortuitous thing. But CPAC uh, is all a scientific audience. They're very, very knowledgeable mm-hmm. and they're very they're very math-oriented as well. So that, that was the first time I ever gave a presentation on the actual mathematics. Um, and so I'm going to describe that a little bit because, of course, one of the problems with it is the work that, sh- that shows that and proves that what I'm saying is right, and then I'm not just a nutcase, is, is very graphic. I use a lot of very complicated – not very complicated, but very uh, uh, pretty – uh, cool-looking graphics in keynote, and I like to present that way, and it's very colorful and it's very entertaining. But, of course, um, probably can't see that on the podcast. So here I'm going to try describing some of it. I'm just going to say that where this is ultimately going is to a rather stunning conclusion concerning Shakespeare, whoever he was, and the Great Pyramid in Giza. Uh, and I'll only say, I'll say something at first that won't make sense until I go and do the backstory, but on the sonnet's title page, let's call it the cover, but the official name of it is the title page, Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, we've known this for, we've seen it, you know, it's, been, it's been around since 1609, so over 400 years. Mm-hmm. And no one's noticed this. Well, why? Why Why would they even be looking for it? But since I'd already solved another part of the code that, that said, oh, the dots, the punctuation is the way in which this cryptographer passes his information along, I then had the knowledge to go, oh, OK, I'm going to look at the punctuation. So what happened, uh, and you don't have to, you know, really visualize this, just know that the sonnets, Shakespeare's sonnets cover has a bunch of uh, a few sentences on it with some, a couple of lines, horizontal, with nothing in between them, which usually has the name of the author. And that's a kind of a clue in itself because it's empty. And then 
the dots, the periods in the, in the punctuation of what it says on the sonnet's cover. So I looked at the, the dots, I started to connect them, and I realized, oh, these three make a perfect right angle, triangle. Interesting, maybe not absolutely impossible, you know, maybe it's random. And then I <laughs> hooked another one up, and there's another right angle triangle with the same hypotenuse. And for those of you who at all have forgotten everything you learned at high school, that's the long side <laughs> opposite, the, opposite the right angle. And then another, and then another, four perfect right angle triangles. Uh, the probability of that, the possibility of it is literally astronomical. It obviously is not a uh, coincidence. It's not random. And then I see, oh, okay, I know pretty much where this is going from a minimal knowledge of math. If you then connect all of those points where the right angle is, you get a circle, perfect circle. So there's a perfect circle hidden on the cover of the sonnets with a common hypotenuse with four perfect right angle triangles. One of them is a three, four, five triangle, the iconic uh, symbol of, well, Pythagoras, all of geometry, really, and very special also to the Freemasons, which, you know, has a, a significant part in this story. And then when you connect them all, you realize, oh, okay, uh, the, these two lines cutting across form another two. So you got and form another two at the circumference of this circle. So there were six perfect right angle triangles and a circle hidden just within the punctuation on the science cover. Well, you don't go to that trouble to do that without it having some meaning. The first meaning that was clear to me is that that is actually a perfect physical symbol of one of the first ever mathematical theorems ever written down by a guy named Thales. Thales was thought to be Pythagoras's mentor, and he's the guy that told Pythagoras to go to, to Egypt and look at the pyramids. So, okay, all right. <laughs> but Thales was also, the thing he's most known for is for, he's the first guy to ever measure the height of the Great Pyramid, and he did it using right angle triangles. Mm. So right off the bat, you've got a massive, uh, a mathematical complex of, of lines hidden. Why? Also hinting at Great Pyramid. So I thought, well, you know, obviously one has to measure these. That you, you don't just, you know, it's not as pretty, but what does it mean? And if you measure all the ratios of the shorter lines of each triangle, so they're all on a common hypotenuse, but you measure the ratio of the short to the longer, short to the longer, short to the longer, on all of these triangles and the interconnections, first of all, and I'm, 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 I'm using the most digitally high-res copy of the sonnets available on the planet. I licensed it from the Folger Shakespeare Museum. So it's very large in the first place, very accurate. And then on top of that, I'm blowing it up five times in my own software. And I'm looking at the results the software is giving me when I'm connecting these lines. And it gives pi, the most known mathematical constant in one of the triangles. Hmm, interesting. But it also gives then E, Euler's number. Euler's number was not discovered until the mid-1700s by, well, it wasn't actually <laughs> by Euler, uh, but I won't go into all of the complexness of that, but oh, e, e, Euler's number is very, very important in mathematics. It's a, it's a constant that really describes growth in a certain way. 
Um, Jacob Bernoulli discovered it in 1683. Newton discovered it before him. And then Euler named it. But it's basically, if you, it's the same formula that uh, banks use today to calculate compound interest. Uh, this, the amount of compound interest that you owe on anything you borrow. And it's so it's very, very important. And it's in radioactive decay. It's in probability theory. It's all over the place. It's just not so well known as pi. Can you can you just go over again where how you found that the uh, <clears throat> the shapes in there and, and where it is in the sonnets page? Simply by connecting the punctuation dots, the dots that are that form the punctuation in the sentences and the cover of of the sonnets. It's it's not important to state the sentences because they're not even important in in the puzzle. It's just the placement of where these dots are. So when you connect them. Lo and behold, there's a perfect circle with six perfect right-angle triangles by connecting all these dots. And, and so it's an image of Thales' theorem. And Thales is the first guy to measure the Great Pyramid. So how, how I get E is just by uh, measuring, taking one triangle and saying, what if I divide the short side on the left into the mid-sized side? You know, it's all on a hypotenuse, and that hypotenuse, the common one, is a, is a diameter of the circle. And so E is on one side of that hypotenuse, but it's exactly E. It's, I mean, it's not close. It's to about three decimal places. Hmm. It's ridiculous. So then, so I'll just list the ones. You've got pi, you've got E, you've got E minus 1, which is a, <laughs> a very important constant that's not really even... I'll say it's important because you'll understand later why it's important, but we don't even think it's important today. And let me stress, the sonnets came out in 1609. Nobody knew E then. Newton, 60 years later, was the first guy to say, oh, voila, I found E. So what's it doing on the sonnets cover, and how come somebody knew it 60 years before, <laughs> before Newton discovered it? I mean, precisely. And then you get into some more well-known constants. There's there's the golden ratio, phi. A lot of people have heard about that. That's also the, a common feature in growth, but it's more in the poetic side. It's how flower petals grow. It's how the uh, the, the the mark the the markings on a on pine cones are all Fibonacci numbers, mm -hmm. seashells, yeah. all that stuff. Nautilus seashell, exactly, all the way up to you know shape of galaxies. It's, 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 it's as though it's a cosmic embedded code, and everybody knows about that. So, you know, so they knew about that during the Renaissance time, but there it is. There's phi. And also, the interesting thing about phi is if you reverse it, if you take its inverse, that is, divide it into one, it gives you phi minus one. It's the only number that does this. Uh, and so there's also phi minus one on the, in, in one of the triangles. And then you get into some others. Brune's constant. And, and again, it's accurate to three decimals. 1.902 is Brune's constant. Nobody's heard of it, but it wasn't found until 1919. And here it is on the cover of the sonnets. <laughs> 300 years earlier. Is there, any, so, is there any place online I can pull up this picture to get a visual? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, is it on your website? It's, there are links to it on the website, and I'll also just give you the YouTube uh, link when we finish this. I'll just send it to you. Okay, perfect. I, oh, it's off, okay, yeah. Off, off the top of my head, I don't even know the name of the, the link, but, you know, it's YouTube something. Mm -hmm. uh, 
two, I've got a YouTube channel, two YouTube channels called the Shakespeare Equation and called one called Bard Code, B-A-R-D-C-O-D-E. Because uh, as you know, Shakespeare was known as the Bard. Um, so yeah, there, yeah, you can see it all. I wish I could show it, but I just can't. But that's why I'm just describing it quickly to say to you, all you folks who are wondering where this is going, it's got that and altogether it's got 12 of the most significant constants all embedded in the sonnet's cover, five of which had not been even discovered in 1609. What are they doing there? The most astounding part, which I wish I could show your listeners, but let me just describe it. There are two angles that are made by these triangles, and they are literally against uh, baselines. One is an absolute horizontal baseline. And so you think, and they're all radiating out of a certain point on, on the cover, the science cover. So it kind of looks like a map of, of, of latitude lines. And, that, and I thought, I wonder if this is a latitude. So I measured it accurately, as accurately as possible with this, uh, with, by trigonometry, really, but also the software does it for you. Thank goodness. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, there, and, and I realized, oh, okay, that's a latitude. But a latitude doesn't mean anything without a longitude. So there's another baseline, again, with, you can see all this online, and another angle. This is the most beautiful thing. If you go to the CPAC and see, see my talk on CPAC, the audience at CPAC, I mean, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, because I mean, it, it really, it's just the fact that it's so brand, it's, this is such brand new material and so thrilling when you see it, you can't believe it. I said, okay, so that angle measures 29 point blah, blah, blah. This angle measures 31 point blah, blah, blah. Let's put it into Google Earth. You put it into Google Earth and it goes right to the Great Pyramid. <laughs> yeah. Wow! It's wow. Uh, in latitude. So it's, there's some sort of connection between Shakespeare and the Great Pyramid. That's right. And what on earth could that be, and why? So that so that's kind of that's where it goes. The old, the overall thing. But I got to give you some uh, background now to understand how this all came about. Otherwise, you, obviously, you you, you know. People's eyes glaze over and they say, yeah, Alan, well done. I don't believe you, <laughs> except that you can see it. Uh, and the people at, at CPAC just went, there was a gasp. They just gasped and it was, it was wonderful to have it recognized. You know, they went, oh, and they just, you know, you know, leapt to their feet and applauded because why not? It's so bloody ridiculous. You think, how is this even possible? We didn't need that. In the Renaissance, 1609, they didn't even know how to do longitude. Galileo was still wrestling with the problem 25 years after Shakespeare died. He could not figure out how to do longitude. We could do latitude very accurately. But longitude was so far off that maps of the Mediterranean from that time period are sometimes so far off east-west direction, off by hundreds of miles. Ships used to have to hug the coastline whenever possible because they were frightened of just getting lost. They could not measure longitude accurately. And here's the longitude on the sonnet's cover of the Great Pyramid, accurate to 99.99% accuracy. And the latitude is accurate to 99.999% accuracy. And he's telling us, look at the pyramid uh, with Thales' theorem. So you've just got to go, what? So then I went to the Great Pyramid and started to look at, you know, what constants are in there. And I found that exactly those same 12 constants were in the Great Pyramid. Now, we don't know that today. We only know if you Google Great Pyramid and Constance, you'll find a lot of 
brouhaha about, well, maybe pie is there and maybe fire is there, because that's been around since John Taylor published a book in 1856 about the pyramid. And he thought that there were mathematical constants. But of course, it's denied by the standard Egyptologists, because we can't have the, we can't have these guys knowing pie. <laughs> they were savages. They were just coming out of the dark ages. We hadn't even invent, invented the wheel yet. So it can't be. It's just a coincidence. So all of a sudden, you know, okay, pie and fire there, but so is E, so is Brun's constant, so is uh, roots two, three, five, and six, and uh, the Euler-Mascheroni constant. I'm not trying to dazzle you with scientific mumbo-jumbo here. It's just that these are all important. And do, you think, on- do you think if he was alive today, do you think he would be more apt to per, trying to push it with all the, I mean, it, it seems like it's coming clearer and clearer that the Egyptians had a lot of shit figured out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You mean Shakespeare? If he was alive today, would he state uh, it? Who, no, whoever wrote that, who wrote the book in 1850? About 1609, I mean, or? 1756, John Taylor wrote a book about who built the pyramids and why. Yeah. Oh. No, I don't, well, maybe, who knows, he might have, yeah, he'd have felt more emboldened, although he was pretty bold to state it at the time, and it started the whole question. I mean, he's he's responsible for that, but he's also responsible, unfortunately, for something called, <laughs> the, the people at the time called it pyramidology. Okay, fair enough, that's <laughs> it. clever, but they said that the people who practiced it were pyramidiots. <laughs> and the reason was he shot himself in the foot he went too far he said well here's pie and here's fire and i believe moses really built the pyramids and it's all biblical related and you know he just went a bit too he just went a bit too far and his name was slurred and so that has sort of stuck this whole idea that anybody who wants to find math in the pyramids is associated with pyramidiots <laughs> <laughs> so plus, you Go ahead. So you're finding all these constants in the math and how they how they are built. Like, does this include the the layout on Giza and, and the, or is it just the pyramid no. shapes and sizes themselves? Good good question. Yeah, I mean, it it does include the layout, but but what I'm showing here is only the Great Pyramid, and the way I get the 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 correlation is just from the proportions of the pyramid. The pyramid that being the base, the diagonal, the half base. The vertical height, corner slope, and the side slope. Those are the basic, uh, simple proportions that are inevitable with the shape of a a square-based pyramid. But it all comes down to however that height is, it it gives you a side angle. That side angle is what precisely gives you all these relationships of pi and phi. But we only know presently today, we know pi and phi, and perhaps E, somebody wrote a paper in about 2002 saying maybe the mathematical constant Euler's number E is there, but it was it was completely ignored because it was shot down by the Egyptologist, Zawi Hawass uh, of the uh, Department of Antiquities, he's left now, uh, did, you know, did, he didn't want any, he didn't, all of them don't want any thing that complicates their paradigm, which is, as John Anthony West so beautifully says, you know, uh, we came from apes to cavemen to brilliant us with our hydrogen bombs and striped toothpaste. I mean, that's the way it is. And so they've got to date the pyramid at 4,500 years ago, because anything further back from that, we get dimmer, dumber, (laughs) dumber, 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 right, into apes. And, you know, so, you know, caveman didn't build the build the pyramids. So how can you say it's 12,500 years old? 
You see, they don't believe in the golden age. They don't believe in the yugas, the whole idea of cyclical rev- uh, uh, evolution. But that's what this basically is pointing to, because uh, these the, the mathematical content in the pyramid is is so precise. I mean, literally at CPAC, I just showed the same twelve that are in the uh, that are in the cover of the sonnets. But since then, in the last three months, um, I've gone deeper into that, and there are presently I've got. I mean, I've actually stopped because it's pointless. There are 43, 43 of the most important mathematical constants in the world are all to be found in those proportions of the pyramid. And what that means is not necessarily that they built it thinking, oh, let's get all 43. And no, yeah, yeah. It's, it just means that if we get this angle precisely right here, all the others kind of fall into place. What it means is they are all related in a way that science presently doesn't know. Because they're looking at the numbers, you know, we see, oh, okay, 3.1459, you know, pi. Okay, well, I got it just, I just got it wrong. 3.1459. And you're looking at, oh, um, oh, well, pi, yeah, uh, but how does that relate to E, 2.718? How does it relate to 1.618035? How does it relate to Brun's constant 1902? They're just numbers. And there's no way to relate them. But when you see it uh, geometrically, that they're connected via the pyramid proportions, then it's more beautiful picture. It's easier to see. And someone has drawn this into the punctuation on the sonnet's cover to tell you exactly the same thing. So how was your experience at the the conference and how did it go? How did your talk go over? Um. Yeah, it, it, it was wonderful. I, I mean, it, well, there was it was a standing ovation, and it was a funny aspect. Wow! <laughs> the funny thing about it is, I went there with about. I, I mean, I'll, again, this will make sense when I give you the background. But I had a book to sell, mm-hmm. um, which is the Shakespeare, the, the initial six-year part of it, the codes that are poetic. This year the book about the mathematical codes will be coming out. But I was just giving them a mathematical thing there. And I didn't, you know, in in the past, even uh, I'd sold what? I don't know, nine books (laughs) since since it had come out. I mean, there was no interest, right? Mm -hmm. I gave the book and I just brought along 50 because because CPAC told me to and I had to buy them, you know, buy them yourself from Amazon. They're available on Amazon. You buy them, there they are. They put them in the book room. And they came back to me half an hour later and said, they're all sold out. I said, what? I, that's, that's not possible. I would have bought, I would have put 200 there if I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea that it was actually going to um, move some books. So it was great. It was, it was wonderful. So let me now, um, unless you have any more question about precisely that aspect of it, where it's ultimately going, I've got to tell you some background. Otherwise, all these things are not going to make sense uh, without that. Yeah, please do. Okay. So I've told you that it's 12 years. Um, you know, 12 years ago, I was at a point in my life where I'd done pretty much everything I'd set out to do as a youngster. I'd trained nine years as a classical pianist in England. I went to the Royal Northern College of Music, but I dropped out uh, because of their attitude to jazz. Um, they just would not tolerate anything that wasn't pure classical. Um, I remember going into my professor one day and I was so excited. I'm a kid, you know, and I, I went, oh. I'm going to see Ellington tonight at the Free Trade Hall. And my professor, his his face was a sight to see. It just became distorted. And he said, oh, really? 
<laughs> as if to say, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you see Duke Ellington? He's not important. So I knew I was not, uh, I was not long there. I, I would have gone mad if I'd have stayed in that environment. So despite them, I, I left. Not that they cared, but I went to Africa with a jazz band. It was my first professional gig. And that led to basically touring the world, playing everything from jazz to Broadway to pop to rock, etc. And then as a pop rock singer songwriter myself, I'd been signed to five record labels. I was signed by Clive Davis to Arista. I was on ABC. I was on CBS. In 1981, I had that top 30 hit record you mentioned, I Surrender, mm-hmm. under a different name, Arlen Day. I'm sure you don't remember it. I can't believe anybody would remember. Uh, Arlen Day sounds really familiar. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, the song is up there on the sound cloud or something. Anyway, it's, on, it's on YouTube, uh, too. It's pretty good. I, I listened to it a couple times. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah. anyway, so uh, that was a, a pseudonym. And so, I mean, I'd, I'd done all these things that I, I kind of set out to do. I'd had my little hit record. Uh, that kind of satisfied me, but at the same time, I was getting on my spiritual path, and uh, I, I wanted to be uh, uh, I wanted to be meditating all the time. Is what I wanted to be doing, and that's not good for somebody on the road. Well, it's it's good, maybe it was, but anyway, my trip was not to stay there, and I got I, I got out of it. But the way I got out of it is 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 very. Um, uh, to know, I wasn't going to tell this. You can you can edit this section out if you uh, wish, but it does come in uh, significant later on. It's a, it's a, it's the first synchro, but sometimes you know synchros, um, fascinating as they are, you don't recognize them. Obviously, at the initiation point, you only recognize later when the the, the other thing happens. You go, oh wow, what a synchro! Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this one was a long time in gestating. Um, as a as a kid, I would come home from school, and I'd you know we, you'd watch the monkeys was on television, and I for some unknown reason I utterly hated this guy Davy Jones. I was jealous as hell of him, and I was I was just really pissed off that he'd got the job I wanted, which was I wanted to be the next Beatles, and. <laughs> This little, you know, this really little five foot two kid from just around the corner from where I lived. I didn't know him, but he, he came from Manchester and he just and he, he made it. He was huge. He was the next big, big thing. And I developed an utter hatred of him. I mean, in my gut, my stomach would churn. I was so upset by this. It made no sense. I mean, it had no rational basis at all. But I hated Davy Jones. So fast forward to I've got this hit on on CBS and I get a call and it's from somebody who says, we've got a gig for you, Arlen. They were still calling me. Arlen, and, and it's it's uh, we can't tell you what it is, but we think you might be very, you know, very suited for it. Um, it, you've got to whip this band into shape. They, they they kind of can't read their charts, and they're going to go on the road soon. And and it's just a temporary thing. Would you go along? You know, it pays pretty well. Just just sort of musical direct them to get them to play the arrangements properly. And um, there you go. I said, well, that's a bit mystery, but yeah, okay. Now I'm talking. This is in uh, 1981. That's when I was born. 
Happy birthday. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but the other part of this story is, honestly, I had found my spiritual path. All I wanted to do was meditate. In fact, I'd sent a letter to uh, the, uh, the organization that delivered the, the, these teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. And I, I wanted to be a monk. I sent them a letter and they politely wrote back saying, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think they can read your aura or something. <laughs> you know? But no, literally the president was then a dire martyr and she wrote back a very nice letter. She said, no, no. She said, no, not this lifetime. Wow. No, not this lifetime. Just stay out doing what you're doing in the world. Blah, blah, blah. But uh, up to that point, I had led a very, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the pop music business. I'd led a very promiscuous life. I occasionally smoked to that thing that I think is on your logo. And, um, in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm coming from, oh, smoking a lot of dope sleeping around and now I've got to be uh, a spiritual and I literally, I swear to you, I made a vow to my guru that I would shape up, that I was going to stop drinking, stop smoking, stop being promiscuous. Two days later, I get this call and I was very serious about my vow. And two days later, I get the call, go, to, go along with this band into shape. So I go along, this is big rehearsal hall and, uh, you know, all the theatre seats and everything. I walk to the front and get on the stage and these guys clearly don't know what they're doing. They can't read the charts. And the first number, I take them through it. The second number, I take them through it. third number is a monkey's song. <laughs> I go, oh, strange. Okay, we go through there. Next number's not a monkey's. Next number's not. And we'd only been at it 15, 20 minutes. And down at the end of the hall, the door's open and who walks in? David, David Jones. Jones. The monkeys. <laughs> David Jones. And all that utter hatred from my childhood suddenly hit me in the stomach. I'm like, oh, shit. And I hear he, he was walking towards me. Now talk about karma. You know, talk about, oh. And he walks up and he goes... Hey, cowboy, how you doing? I hear you're from Manchester, right? <laughs> oh, have a fucking great time. We will. He said, oh, do you know that pub down the road in, on such and such a street in Manchester? And you know that lady? Oh, bloody hell, what's her name? Oh, and he's talking about Ina Sharples and Coronation Street and all the English stuff. And within five minutes, I am on the floor laughing because he's so funny. And I'm making him laugh. And he's loving it. And he's looking at me. He's going, oh, this is going to be great. You're coming on the road with us, aren't you? What? I said. I thought it was just a whip. Oh, whip the band into shape. There, uh, you've got them in shape, right? Let's go to the, let's go to a bar. I said, no, 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 no. Wait. He said, oh, come on. It'd be bloody great. You and me. He says, I can't. I can't talk to these Americans. He said, come on. It'll be great. You'll really. You'll make me look good. I mean, he had a way of like really boosting you up and saying so. It was me that was going to make him look good. And out of nowhere, I said yes. Because in 10 minutes with him, I was utterly, all that hatred was gone. I loved him. Did, I was having. Did he know it was you or did he think you were someone else? Because I guess you would have told him your real name. No, he didn't know me. You see, from this background when I was a kid. No, he didn't. I, I didn't know him. He didn't know me. I just from, I'm from Manchester. We're both from Manchester. I'm saying I just hated him because he'd got my gig. 
the next Beatles. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, but he, we didn't know each other. Never. And and so he's, he just knows he's here, heard I'm from Manchester. So he just starts in with all the Manchester talk. And literally within 10 minutes, we're pissing ourselves laughing, rolling on the floor. The band are standing around going, what's going on? Because they don't understand it at all. It's local dialect Manchester humor. And he says, are you coming on the road? And I just said, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. And two days later, we were in Washington, D.C. on the first, the first gig. And I was with him as his musical director then for 12 years. And, and what happened to the vow? <laughs> My vow of celibacy and um, sobriety in all forms. When you're working for David Jones and you're, we became, I mean, we were best friends. I mean, wasn't even working for him. And every day, any, every hotel we were at, we had to have adjoining rooms. Uh, because uh, I was his musical director. And if we were going to change the gig for that night, I'd have to come in through the adjoining door and say, hey, David, let's cut out these eight measures here and let's put this song in. But, oh, great, great. <laughs> had to be in constant contact. Every night, women are throwing themselves at him and he would come with two, three women on his arm and say, you're going to help me with these. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so that was the that was a tour the whole time. Oh, that's unbelievable. So I, I remember the monkeys as a kid because... Of course, they were on TV, and they were, it was pretty funny. And uh, I don't remember when, when that was, if that was afterwards, uh, after you were doing this, or was it older? Re like it's, I don't even oh, know no, if it was were, live or if it was replays and stuff like that, but I always... You were watching reruns of the, of the, of the 60s uh, uh, TV show, which ran from... Was it that old? 64 to 66, yeah. Yeah, but I thought there was newer, newer episodes or something. I, I seem to remember it being newer than that as a kid. <laughs> No, they tried to pull it together. They, they put together something called the New Monkeys, and it just didn't work at all. Oh, okay. The, the Monkeys fans are so loyal. I mean, they will travel. I mean, when I was on the road with David, I mean, literally, oh, God, the, the fans would, would show up at one gig, and then they'd drive 500 miles and be there the next night at the next gig. We were in a tour bus all flying, and, 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 and they'd, they'd still they'd be there. They're absolutely the most loyal, wonderful fans, and they still they're still active today. I mean, they, they, if you look at my Facebook page, I'm not active on Facebook at all. I don't understand it really. I don't, but I know I have to use it now to uh, develop um, pushing this information. Um, but all that's, all that's on my Facebook site at, at the moment is monkeys fans pushing pictures of it saying, Oh, look at this. This is how Alan looked when he was on tour with David and, you know, before the dinosaurs went extinct. And I, you know, <laughs> So were the, oh, were the monkeys, were the monkeys, because uh, I always, I was confused as a kid because I thought it was a, a TV show, right? Like I thought it was, they were created for the TV show. It was almost like, not That's fake, exactly. but was it a real, were they real as well? Like, Well, it was, a, it was a fake, it was a deliberate concept. They used to call the Beatles the Fab Four, and then they called the monkeys the Prefab Four. Because they were just literally prefabricated. They were made to be a, a, a spin-off, well, others would say a rip-off, of the Beatles. But they had this magnificent machine going for them. Don Kirshner and uh, was putting it on. You know, it was a TV show. It was on every uh, weekday at a certain time. Every episode was the band playing a new song written for them by all their writers. Neil Diamond, Carol King, Jerry Goffin. Uh, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, all these people that wrote 
great songs, John Denver, you know, they wrote the songs for them. So every week was a hit song. Why, every week. Why were every, they? Sorry, go ahead. Why, would, why were all those famous musicians writing these songs for the monkeys? Uh, Don Kirshner, the producer of the show, had some clout. I mean, I mean, they didn't mind. I mean, to them, they didn't. Because it was a TV thing, right? Yeah, it was yeah. a, it was kind of a well, new thing. It just thing, reminds right? me of the whole like Laurel this... Canyon thing, right? Because the monkeys were yeah. right in that Laurel Canyon scene, weren't they? No, that was before that, right? So, have you ever uh, heard of? Uh, well, have you ever heard that of that work about the? I mean, you would probably know this more than most, but have you heard about that deeper conspiratorial work of? Um, what was his name again, Darren? Dave, Dave McGowan. Dave McGowan. The late Dave McGowan, yeah. About, uh, you know, dark scenes, what was it, dark scenes or hidden scenes within Laurel Canyon? Like, basically, that a lot of the musicians that came up in the late 60s and all centered in California around Laurel Canyon and all that were, a lot yeah. of them had um, intelligence backgrounds. Their parents had intelligence backgrounds and there was some sort of uh, connection to intelligence agencies or, or the military complex. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me, but I haven't looked. I, had, I, I don't know about that. I, I, you know, Joni Mitchell, uh, the uh, who else? I mean, that, it was that group of people, but, you know, Neil Young. Um, so I don't know. I feel like it was before. I feel like it was before that era. Darren. I think that was like sixties. Like, yeah, right? the late sixties. Though I think the monkeys were monkeys were sixty four to sixty six. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. staggering uh, statistic is the monkeys in in nineteen sixty six sold more records than the Beatles and Elvis combined in that year. Wow! Hey, hey, with the monkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was so so huge. That yes, it started out as a prefab thing. It was deliberate. It was a it was a war machine effort. We will put a song in front of these teeny bopper kids every week. They will love it. They will go and buy it. It will be a hit. And they were having hits faster than they could deal with. And and so all of a sudden there was a, a definite uh, market for them to become a band and really go on the road. And so they had to go on the road and they had to learn to play. But they literally at first. Uh, were not really players. The only player, the only person who could play kind of uh, fairly well uh, was Mike Nesmith, although I don't know. I mean, I didn't know them at that time, but since I've learned and I wrote a couple of books on it, and the, you know, but David was, uh, David was, you know, a passable guitar player. I mean, I'm not knocking him. He, he would say so himself. Um, but he was voted on Letterman, um, both... Uh, Letterman had a thing of the top 10 rundown of best tambourine players in the world. And Davey came in in three places. He came in number seven, number four, and number one. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be some numerical code in there. <laughs> he played a mean tambourine. He really did. No, but I mean, he was a good singer and he was a great entertainer. And the others were all were actors. And Mickey Dolenz played the drums and he had to learn. And uh, Peter Talk was a mathematician. Well, he is now a mathematician teacher probably wasn't at the time. But the thing is, they had to suddenly get on stage. Here's a nice trivia thing for you. The first gig they ever did was in Hawaii because they didn't like Broadway. You know, you don't want to open on Broadway. You open way, way, way off Broadway in case it's a flop. So they they were rehearsing and they put them out on in Hawaii, somewhere really remote. And opening for them was Jimi Hendrix. Oh, wow. And the Kids booed Hendrix off the stage. Huh. They wanted 
last train to Clarksville. <laughs> and Hendrix came off very, very upset. <laughs> like, obviously, you know, this is what I'm playing for these imbeciles for. Uh, that's what that would have been his uh, attitude. And the point was, though, it was it was badly a bad match, you know, because they didn't want they didn't want to hear that kind of music. They wanted to hear their hit records. Anyway, so. Yes, David, by the time I was with him as his musical director, it was from in the 80s. And so, um, and I had uh, made this vow and I, I, I stuck by it, amazingly, because I was meditating all the time. And in fact, David used to sit next to me on the bus and he'd look across and say, what's that, what's that book you're reading? I said, it's an autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. <laughs> Oh, no. I said, not that. Oh, Peter Talk used to read that. Said, you, you mean you, you, you sit like you sit like this, right, with your hands? And he, I mean, he, would, he would do this, this um, gesture with the hands up, with the palms upturned on your knees, right? So the yoga posture. You sit like that. So, so you mean you sit like that and you go, what, what do you do? What do you, what do, you do? What do you do? Are you going, why me? Why me, Lord? Because <laughs> you're turning your hands upside down. You go, why me? So he he started to call meditation "why meing it," and so he'd say he'd say every night he'd say, oh, "So you're gonna you're gonna party with us tonight? You're gonna smoke a bit of dope? Eh? You're gonna yeah? Come on, there's these girls all waiting, or are you gonna why me it?" And I'd say, "No, I think I'm gonna why me it." Well, I, I wasn't very popular with the rest of the band, I must say, but I'd, I'd taken this vow and I, I, I took it seriously. But it was a, certainly a test of it. I mean, it's the funny thing, isn't it? The moment you get serious about your spiritual path. You're tested. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're tested. And now I'm literally two days later, boom, end of the week, boom, I'm on the road and I'm getting offered free everything for the next two years. It was it lasted. And wow, I, I made that's pretty it pretty good. Thank you. I'll take a bow. No, I mean it was just uh, no <laughs> and that was it. I finally broke down after two years. So but with <laughs> somebody who <laughs> meant something to me anyway so but you know that was it and he would always say oh you're gonna wind me it again and i i would be meditating in my door next to him listening to him partying next door yeah it was quite it was quite a test anyway so that's that brief uh tangential um, <laughs> escape into the time of the monkeys, but it's important. It was a, it was a massive synchro, wasn't it? I mean, it's like oh yeah, that, that's karma for you. I hated him, hated him, hated him for no reason, and I met him. Oh what, twenty years later? Not quite. Maybe you were precognitively hating your celibacy for two years. You know that yeah, you're that like, motherfucker's like, going to make I'm... me stop smoking dope. He's going to tease me with all these women around his arms, and I can't do anything. So I do have to ask you, though. Well, if you think of the fact that time's probably not linear and all this shit's happening at the same time, then you would have already exactly. known that. Yeah, exactly. He was feeling it. So what about 80s music in general? Like, you you were traveling around the monkeys in the 80s. And, I mean, the 80s truly was, a. I think, it was truly an interesting decade in music, a fascinating decade. You know, if you were... If you were if you were any kind of crazy musician and any kind of band, you would you you know, and you wanted to come up with this different style of music or whatever, you could do it in the eighties and you could get a hit. Like it was, you know, Elton, Elton uh, you know, it was. I mean, not that I think he had something 
some stuff out earlier than that, but obviously that was a major, major era for him and a ton of stuff. Yeah, I, li- I liked it. The thing was, I never liked the monkeys. And I told him that. I said, well, he, he said, he would say, oh, you saw us. You saw the group, didn't you? You know who I am. He would say that to me. You, do you know who I am? <laughs> but what was it? What was it about the eighties that they gave people the power to to create a a hit? Like, and, and and it's ironic that I'm not saying that you know against you at all or in any way. But you did have a hit in the eighties, and it was the you know the era of the one hit wonders and stuff. Like, if was it was it different? What was different about it? Why did it create so many interesting songs and hits and like that whole genre? Was it? Was there something different about it? I have no idea. No. Oh, I can't. I can't give you a sensible answer. I. I, I really don't know. I. I, I don't know. Um, you know, it, music always goes through its own uh, cycles, and it was uh, very. It was a very inventive time, you know, and perhaps the nineties not so much, and perhaps the seventies not so much. But I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I. I I didn't know if it had something to do with like record labels or the way things were become, opened up somehow or, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, I was on the record labels was literally in the, from the mid seventies through to, uh, 81. Yeah. And I, I, I did it just by sheer force of will. I would go into a record label. I'd say, listen to my stuff. I'm damn good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, the way I got, I got signed to by Clive Davis, literally by, I walked well, I, I swear, I walked into his office in New York wearing a scuba diving outfit with flippers and a spear gun. Can you imagine trying to trying to do that today? I'd be shot before I could get in. But I walked, I went into his building, I went in the in, in the elevator. I'm standing there in a, an entire wetsuit, flippers, like a scene from uh, The Graduate, and with, with an actual spear, an actual spear gun. I rented all this and just walked in there, and I said, "I want to see Clive Davis," and he he he. He saw me because of just what, you know, it's balls, really. It's just, if this guy is going to go to this much trouble, I'd better find out what he's got because, you know, he's he's got what it takes to at least push and promote himself. So, you know, that's an integral part of it. So I got signed by Clive Davis. But, but, but as That was part of it. Obviously, then he wanted to see me and he came to a gig and he, sign me but you know it you know you've got to <laughs> so i don't know about the eight i can't really answer the 80s because i did all that in the in the 70s i was on a minor, minor label then i was on arista and then i was on um abc and then i was on uh mca very 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 briefly and then i was finally on cbs and got my hit and that and that's what i wanted to do Anyway, the point of all this is that, that I, I'd said at that point in my life, 12 years ago, I had done everything I'd, I'd wanted to do. I'd done the, all of the record thing. I'd done musical director for Davey. I'd toured with the monkeys. I'd written two successful books while touring with Davey. One was called They Made a Monkey Out of Me, <laughs> the first ever desktop published celebrity book. First ever. We created it we, I, on a Macintosh. And um, we were the first people to do it. We started the desktop publishing industry. I mean, it would have happened without us anyway. I don't mean to take credit for it, but we were the first. And the second book was called Mutant Monkeys Meet the Masters of the Multimedia Manipulation Machine. Oh, nice. And it won an award. It was the award-winning book at Mac Expo in 1992 for best desktop published book in the nation. So, you know, so I'd done all this. I got a lot of experience with publishing. And throughout all that whirlwind of recording and touring, 
uh, as I said, I'd found my spiritual path and I'd been meditating then for, by the time I'm talking to him about, you know, 12 years ago, I'd been meditating for over 25 years, which had kept me balanced and probably saved my life, honestly. Mm-hmm. Become the father of a wonderful daughter, Alana. I'd settled in Los Angeles, where I am now, and I was happily teaching piano uh, to kids of the rich and famous in Beverly Hills. And life was good. I'd saved enough money to retire, and I, and I, not in America, really. I couldn't have retired at that time in America, but I... I had enough to retire in Argentina, and I went down there a couple of times to scout out some land where I planned to build a home, grow vegetables, have a couple of chickens for eggs. I was all set. I mean, David would have loved it. He was absolutely for that, but he went and died. Bloody hell, we could have been there together. And he said, come on, cowboy, let's have some chickens and sit here and grow old, is what he would have said. So I thought, oh, I can retire there and for life and I'll just write the musical that I knew I had in me. I knew I, I had, I wanted to write a musical. I'd written a musical some years ago. It never got uh, produced though, but I, I loved the experience. And I had the feeling that I would write another one. The only thing missing was I had no subject or story that, I re- that really grabbed me. And yet I had this nagging, very strong feeling that I hadn't finished yet. I don't, you know, I hadn't done what I'd really come here to do. Hmm. Here, I mean, here on Earth, you know. I mean, I, I had this. I was praying almost incessantly for a couple of years for guidance. What is it? Please show me. Why me? <laughs> you know. And I could sense it was something big, I, a long project that would take all my con- concentration and resources because tended I tended to work on very big projects. So I thought, but I knew it. I thought, what is this thing? I can't die yet. I know that there's something big coming, and I absolutely had no idea. And I, so in 2004, a good friend of mine was performing a one-man show in L.A. called Sherlock Holmes Solves the Shakespeare Mystery, and he invited me to come and see it. Now, truth is, I really didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to go. I'd never had any interest in Shakespeare my whole life, just like I'd never had any interest in the, in the monkey's music. Um, uh, I must say, to, to, to rectify that, that ultimately I, I really began to love what the monkeys did uh, because they were, it, was, it was far more than that. They were like the Marx Brothers of, of pop music. They were very, very clever, very, very funny. But anyway, so I had no interest in Shakespeare. My whole life it had been taken, I, I, it went under the, under the radar to me. I didn't understand it, didn't want to know about it. So my friend says, come, you know, come to my show. Oh, and you know how you've got a friend. And you got a friend and you know you've got to go under duress to support him. I was anticipating a very dull evening and just hoping that after the show I'd find the right mix of equivocation and congratulation. You know, like, hey, well done, Michael. So I'm there. And he's weaving this amazing alternate story of Shakespeare that most of the world doesn't know. I mean, most people have, have from time to time heard vague theories in the news that maybe the official the official story we were all taught in school about the man from an illiterate family in Stratford with no education wrote the greatest plays in English literature and that maybe this wasn't true. But in general, the media only mentioned these notions tongue in cheek so as to then tear them down as crazed conspiracy theories by crackpots. You know, uh, we would never get to hear the nitty gritty Details that really do cast a serious doubt on the orthodox story. So here's, I'm watching this show, and he's telling everybody, he's laying out a very disciplined, cogent argument, delivering all these well-researched facts that I'd never heard. You know, say that the man was born William Shakespeare, not Shakespeare. He was born William Shakespeare, 
that's how his name was spelled and pronounced in Warwickshire, came from an illiterate family, had no known education, never taught his daughters to read or write. Can you imagine that, Shakespeare? <laughs> writes all these great, strong, intelligent, witty female roles, couldn't be bothered to teach his daughters to read or write. Most baffling of all, <clears throat> he left zero paper trail concerning his supposed life as a writer. Nothing. No manuscripts. Not a play exists. A poem, a page, a line, a word in his own hand. Only six signatures. They're all spelled differently, and even handwriting experts can't agree they were all written by the same person. They are completely, almost illegible. Um, three are on his will, and three are on real estate documents. Nothing anywhere about playwriting. He has the most successful 23-year career in London theatre ever. He's the greatest writer in the English language, the toast of the town, and no one ever saw him. He never wrote a letter. The greatest writer in the world never wrote a letter to anyone. Only one was ever written to him, and that was never opened. <laughs> no one during his lifetime ever mentions seeing him. No one had a pint with him down the pub. No one writes in their diary that they saw Will Shakespeare at so-and-so or in or after the play of his. He was wanted for back taxes once, and the law couldn't find him. No one in his hometown ever indicated they knew he was the famous successful writer. They knew him only as a grain merchant, as a cheapskate who was constantly suing his neighbours for pennies that they owed him. He was, he was actually sued himself for hoarding grain during a famine so he could gouge the locals with extortionate prices. That's Shakespeare from Stratford. And this supposedly was the same man who in London was writing, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. I'll sue you, you bastard. I mean, I mean just for two pennies. This doesn't make sense, you know, it's a big disconnect. He had no known education, yet he quotes from, borrows from all the classic literature, most of which he had to have read in their original Latin, Italian, French, and Greek, as they had not yet been translated into English. He knows astronomy, astrology, mathematics, geography, botany, biology, medicine, warfare, seafaring, heraldry, court politics, the intimate customs of the monarchy, all the aristocratic pursuits such as hunting, hawking, Tennis, jousting, fencing, music, singing, dance. He knows it all. Above all, he knows and quotes profusely deep and complex aspects of the law. He uses all the right terms in all the right places. Never is short of a, of a poetic simile to link these various categories together smoothly, accurately. Modern experts in each of these fields have poured over the writings and they seldom find an error. They say he knows everything. He knows. He says he's right about all this. Mark Twain wrote about it. He said, you know, I, I, I worked on the, the riverboats. It's like, you know, if you'd have asked me to write about the riverboats, I would just make stuff up and I'd get it wrong. You'd spot that I didn't know the riverboats unless I'd actually been there. How does this guy know all this? And he writes like he knows it all specifically. Shakespeare of Stratford never traveled Outside England, yet he knows Italy like the back of his hand. He knows the streets, local customs, specific names, landmarks, weather, modes of transport, the laws, their art, their theatre. Anyway, so it's getting to, I mean, he's listing all this stuff and it's getting towards the end of the this show. And I'm here, I'm learning that when, when lesser poets died in England, there were days of public mourning, miles of weeping fans following the parade as a coffin was carried by horse-drawn carriages to Westminster Abbey. And then the contemporary poets would pour out hours of eulogies and lamentations. And when Shakespeare died, not a single word was spoken. No outpouring of grief. It's as if it never happened. Not a word to mark the loss. Not for seven years, nobody said anything. 
later then they started to put together this story, which is very suspicious in itself. You know, why wait that long? No, you know, he died. No one said a word. And his will, not a single book, not a single book is listed in his will. He's the most read, literate person on the planet. Where's, where's his books? 18 of his plays were still yet to be published yet. Now, a one is mentioned. It's valuable. You know, why do we hear, you know, I bequeathed my 18 plays to? No, nothing. Not a mention. Not a poem stuck away in a drawer somewhere. So it makes no sense. <clears throat> Obviously, there's a cover-up of sorts. Now, at this stage, I wasn't saying, well, the man from Stratford isn't the guy, but something, you know, something's being hidden. Something's rotten in the state of Warwickshire. So there's, there's some speculation that there's there's some suspects, isn't there? Oh, well, yes, of course. So yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about those. But basically, the point is, it takes a lot of work to erase every trace of a successful, famous man's life. And if the Stratford Shakespeare story is indeed a big lie, um, you know what's the big truth that's being hidden? Why the mystery? So as I watched all this un- unfold, I knew completely down to my marrow. I'd gone there thinking, oh, this is going to be awful. I knew this is it. This was this was that something that I'd felt was coming. This was the story I was waiting for. This is what I would write as my musical. And I started research the very next day, and I haven't had a day off since wow. <laughs> twelve years. Uh, um, so, um, and I quickly learned that yeah, yeah. To answer your question there about there are other candidates. Yeah, Mark Twain, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry James, Charles Dickens, two U.S. Supreme Court justices, countless others, have all strongly voiced their doubts that the man from Stratford named Shakespeare uh, could have been the greatest writer in history. But, yeah, there were all these other uh, candidates. Um, I set out researching the entire life story of Shakespeare because, as I said, I had no interest. So all of a sudden I got to catch up. I knew nothing. But that was good because I came with a clean slate. I had no preconceived notions and I wasn't trying to prove it wasn't. I wasn't trying to prove it's not him or it is him or it's somebody else. I kind of left that alone for a, a little while. I just knew there was a mystery story. Great story. Either the guy from Stratford had something to hide or some alternative candidate had some reason to use a cover. Either way, there was a big lie that was being covered up by a big truth somewhere. Like it was covering like uh, down the lines of a pseudonym, kind of like you yourself had used? Well, yeah. Well, yes, of course. And you find out then that, that it was very, very, very common for uh, pseudonyms to use a hyphen. Uh, and Shakespeare is often hyphenated, Shakespeare. And also, but uh, about as many times it's not also. Um, but nevertheless, it was very common, but particularly among the nobility. Well, you know, the, the, you know, the nobles, the people who were educated, who if they wrote, they would never admit it. They would admit it posthumously, but it was considered absolutely not done. You can't be, you know, you're an aristocrat. You don't work. You can't work. You don't, you know, don't get paid for anything. That would be bring shame on your aristocratic name, your family. And all these reasons are brought up for why a nobleman perhaps did it, but would have hidden his identity. And it's partially true, but I never bought it entirely because everybody has a need, you would think, for, you know, hey, I wrote that. I just want the, re- I want the recognition, you know. But theatre people were considered vagabonds. They were considered the lowest of the low. It's not so great now, you know, but, but, but then they were considered absolutely just, just liberty. There was no way that a, a nobleman could associate with the scum of the theater. Hey, so, I got something to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, Do you think you shook a spear at Clive Davis? 
<laughs> I, I mean, that's Shakespeare. Yeah, he brought a spear gun to Clive Davis, and he was probably shaking the spear. And then he got Shakespeare. Maybe you're Shakespeare in a past life. I never made the connection. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> Seriously, I never. No, I didn't. Even, I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, spear gun. Wow. Graham's kind of special. Anyway, <laughs> who was it? Without Darren or Graham? That was, that Graham. was Graham. Okay, Graham. Nice one. Chocolate one for me. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> Come on, Darren. You, you, you're you got to catch up. <laughs> so anyway, I researched like crazy, and I wrote the musical. I called it Bard. It's known as The Bard. Most people in America don't necessarily know that. The Bard. And over the next year and a half, Bard, Bard seemed like a great title, by the way, because either Shakespeare or the real Shakespeare had been obviously barred mm-hmm. from the whole truth about their identity for some unknown reason. So I'd written the music. It took about, I'd written about, say, half, three quarters of the musical. And I started to get some stuff and I knew what the musical was about, but there was other stuff popping up that was heading in a completely different direction that was stunning. There's a quatrain that's four lines in Sonnet 121 that uh, Orthodox scholars won't go anywhere near. It's so incredibly revealing of the whole cover-up that it was the crux of what the musical was about at that time. It has changed since then, but at that time, that's all I had, and I thought, wow, this is this is stunning. And of course, as I went deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, a lot more came into focus, but back then, all I had to go on was this stunning sonnet and what it hinted at. The poet writes, Sonnet 21, I quote, No, I am that I am... And they that level at my abuses reckon up their own. I may be straight, but they themselves be bevel. By their rank thoughts, my deeds must not be shown. Now, there's a lot packed into those four lines. Level, reckon, straight, bevel, rank. These are all Freemasonic terms. Poetically, I may be straight means I'm telling the truth. They themselves are bevel means they're crooked, they're lying. But who are they? says by their rank thoughts rank can mean their position within an organization so i I was already getting other clues from all over the place that there's a secret society involved in in those days it was called the rosicrucians and it morphed into the freemasons so there's a secret society that's maybe mandating the secrecy rank he's saying my deeds must not be shown by their rank thoughts but of course rank is he's clever he's a poet rank also means stinking their thoughts stink to high heaven. You know, he's, he's always using double meaning. So the most stunning statement, which scholars will not discuss, is the phrase, I am that I am. Now, this is the name of God as revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. He's just been given the Ten Commandments, and he's about to go down the mountain to his people, and he asks God, who shall I say sent me? And God answers in Hebrew, Eher Asher Eher, which is translated as, I am that I am. Now, the sonnets were published in 1609 when Queen Elizabeth I died and James of Scotland succeeded to the throne of England. He introduced a new law in 1604. It stated that no one could use the name of God in a poem, a play, a May Day parade under the penalty of a fine of £10 for each infraction. Well, £10 then was the equivalent of about $10,000. And since it's widely assumed Shakespeare published about a thousand copies of the sonnets, Five years later, in 1609, he should have been fined the equivalent of $10 million. But that would have been the least of his problems because he's not just using the name of God, I am that I am. He's stating it in the first person. He says, no, 
I am that I am. And they that level at my abuses reckon up their own. He's basically saying he's divine or he's saying he's in a very, very high state of consciousness, you know. But it doesn't end there. Guess what the law was that King James had introduced with such uh, penalties? It was called the act of abuses. <laughs> and here comes Shakespeare, a commoner, eh, saying, no, I am, I am that I am, I'm divine. And they that level at my abuses reckon up their own. Wow. He's telling the king, watch your own abuses, man. Hmm. First, he's guilty of blasphemy. Second, he's guilty of treason, challenging the king. He even pushes it further, if that were possible. In the very last line of the sonnet, he uses a word reserved for the king, reign, R-E-I-G-N. He writes, all men are bad and in their badness reign. Hmm. Oh, my God. So it's, it's utterly outrageous. He should have been hung, drawn and quartered multiple times. <laughs> And it's inconceivable that anyone could get away with that, let alone a lowly commoner. But Shakespeare, whoever he was, was not even brought in for questioning. So, again, another piece of the puzzle that makes absolutely no sense, unless we're not being given the whole truth of the situation. If, you know, it only makes sense if those in the know were aware that Shakespeare from Stratford was not the writer of these blasphemous, treasonous sonnets, and the real author could not be brought in for questioning, torture, and execution because. He was already deceased. Hmm. And that was 1609. Shakespeare from Stratford, Shakespeare, lived till be, uh, to 1616. So in that case, the king's thugs, commonly known as the Star Chamber, they, they couldn't punish the writer if he was already gone. All they could do was suppress the sonnets, seize them as soon as they came off the presses. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The publication of Shakespeare's sonnets is one of the greatest mysteries in all of literature. Hmm. They should have been. It should have been a huge success. Shakespeare's name on any publication made it an automatic bestseller. His previous poetic offerings, Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece, had gone through 16 sellout reprints by the time the sonnets came out. So they expected this to be a massive hit. Yet there's no evidence that it sold even one copy. It disappeared into a deafening silence. No reviews, no praise, no criticism. No one mentions it in their diaries or letters. Hardly a soul says a word about the sonnets for the next hundred years. Now, today, there's only 13 copies that have been found, tucked away in private libraries and collections over the centuries. They're absolutely priceless. They're kept in, in museums uh, throughout the world under, under lock and guard, and not even the public can see them. I mean, they're literally priceless. You couldn't put a price on a, on a copy of the sonnets. And presumably these few that we have now today had escaped the king's purging. But here we have the first of men, well, another, Synchro, your favorite fun theme. In the, if the sonnets were suppressed, as most scholars, even the orthodox scholars, believe is the only likely explanation for their disappearance, it must have been because of what they contained. And though there are many other hidden secrets within the sonnets besides this attacking the king, I had just identified that, the biggest one, <clears throat> his blasphemous statement, I am that I am. But remember, there's practically zero paper trail. The desire to find any document connected to the Bard, no matter how small or mundane, has given rise to the largest literary manhunt in history. Scholars have scoured the nooks and crannies of attics and libraries in England for a good couple of centuries, and they've turned up nothing, nothing that proves he was a playwright. Mm. And that hunt has unearthed only one written document from the time that uses that exact forbidden phrase. So only one person besides Shakespeare in the sonnets actually said in writing, I am that I am. And it's in a letter from Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, 
to William Cecil, Queen Elizabeth's chief advisor and Lord High Treasurer. And in the letter, De Vere is warning Cecil to stop spying on him. <laughs> and he's, and to, uh, yeah, Cecil wasn't well known for spying on everybody, but De Vere, Oxford, was uh, a ward of Cecil's until he became uh, age of 21 that he could leave. But he was literally held under, uh, you know, Cecil's guard as a ward. And Here's De Vere, though, saying to under, he's the 17th Earl of Oxford. That's the most noble line in the in England. He's the most noble person in England besides a monarch himself. And to underline that, he out, he outranks Cecil in name and power. He states, and this is what he says in the letter, I serve Her Majesty and I am that I am. It's a very strong letter. And he's saying, quit spying on me, get out. Same, same, uh, same first person use of it. Same thing. So I'd stumbled on a gigantic synchro. <laughs> Oxford was the only person ever to dare to use that forbidden phrase and even to put it in writing in the first person, exactly the way Shakespeare had in Sonnet 121. So this amazing find uh, it hit me like a ton of bricks because that's the, very, that's the very person that my friend had identified in his one-man show. He believed that Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, sometimes just called Oxford, was the real Shakespeare. No way. Yeah. An aristocrat who, now, so Oxford was an aristocrat who had all the education needed to be the writer. He, wow. he, he traveled to Italy to precisely all the cities that are mentioned as the centers of the action in 13 of his most popular plays. He'd been there. He'd seen it all. He'd come to, he, had, he was known as a playwright, but all his plays have disappeared. And he stops writing plays in 1593, we, we see nothing more from Edward de Vere, <laughs> and 1593 is the date that we first see the name William Shakespeare appear, and then everything from then on is plays by William Shakespeare. So my, my research now turns strongly to Oxford, you know, so who had been uh, the leading alternate candidate for the true Shakespeare. So to answer your, your, your question at this point, it might be helpful to clarify the terms we use to distinguish the various candidates. Those who believe it was 17th Earl of Oxford, Devere, they're called Oxfordians. Before him, Sir Francis Bacon had had a huge following. That movement started in the late 1800s. And those who believe it was Bacon, they're called Baconians. And those that favor the standard story, the men from Stratford, they're called Stratfordians. So at this point, I'm fairly convinced about Oxford, but I'm still, I'm still looking for information. I'm finding tons more evidence. And a lot of it points to the possibility that whoever he was, they would have found a way to hide the truth. Uh, you know, they had to code it, though, because you, literally you could have been brought in and, and burned at the stake, you know, for for trying to bypass, uh, get information passed. Now, in, in Elizabethan times and Jacobean eras that followed, uh, they were very repressive regimes. And one of the most common ways of getting sensitive information around or past the authorities was, of course, encryption codes. It was very common. So the more I dug into this, the more I found that there are literally hundreds, some say thousands of books or articles, at least, suggesting Shakespeare left the truth of his existence in secret codes within the works, within the plays and the poems. The Baconians had followed this uh, inquiry for decades and many Oxfordian researchers too. And the deeper I went, friends, and I think of this, I, I'm at the point where I've got my musical ready. Thinking, oh, got it, got it. I didn't know it was going to go further than this. I just thought I had a good story, good musical. I wasn't pinning it on anyone, just showing the mystery. Isn't it great? But friends started advising me that although the musical was sounding, well, from between good and great, <laughs> my daughter said it was great. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I was saying, hey, it's very good, Alan, but perhaps you should write it first as a historical mystery novel 
In, you know, much easier. <laughs> no, but simply economically, it's much, you know, you've got to raise, what, 25, 30 million to put a musical on, uh, on Broadway um, to write a novel, you know, just publish it. So, and they were saying, you know, maybe this is the, you know, maybe it's the real Da Vinci Code. You know, write something like that. It's a historical mystery based on facts of that period. So by year two, anyway, I had switched direction. I put the musical on the back burner and I had mapped out an enormous modern day fictional story based on the non-fictional historical Shakespeare mystery. Another couple of years had gone by. My book was all finished. And at the end, my heroine, the modern day heroine, Julia, announces that she's cracked the code. She's revealing where the bard has left physical evidence to prove that he really was the Earl of Oxford. The only thing was I didn't have an actual code, so I figured that if Dan Brown could do it, I would, I would just make one up. I mean, it didn't need to be real. This part, the modern part of the story, was fiction. So I was just going to say, and he, here's the code, and he's put the evidence here. could be anywhere. I was thinking it would be in Westminster Abbey. So I thought, oh, but, you know, it started to bug me that I hadn't actually, I mean, I started to fantasize. Well, what if this book is a success? And I get on Charlie Rose and Charlie Rose says, <laughs> He said, have you ever been to Stratford? Uh, no. Have you ever been to the grave? No. Have you ever looked for a code? No, not really. I just made one up. I thought, oh, that's going to sound bad. I'd better spend a couple of weeks researching how codes were done during the Renaissance. That's exactly what my thinking was. So I figured I should go. So I booked a ticket to Stratford. And I thought, honestly, I thought I'll spend two weeks on it. And now the synchros start coming in droves. It's like a whole slew of synchros. Um, it's a synchro symphony, actually. <laughs> I get to England, I walk off the plane, and the first newspaper I see is the, literally, I'm just walking off the plane, the first newspaper, it's the Sunday Express, and it has a headline, Shakespeare actor Kenneth Branagh swayed by the theory that the true author was the 17th Earl of Oxford. Oh, wow. And I went, bingo! Yes, this is a sign. You know, it was great. I got a sign. <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> I thought, wow, because Kenneth Branagh, you know, other major Shakespearean actors like Mark Rylance, Derek Jacobi, Michael York, they'd all come out openly saying they thought they had doubts about the Stratford man and, and they thought it was uh, Oxford. But Branagh had always remained neutral on the subject. He's kind of royalty in Hollywood. He'd done three major things. He was up for Oscars, you know. I think he doesn't want to rock the boat. And all of a sudden, on day one, I arrive there, and he's come out of the closet for it. And he's actually said, I think it's the, I think maybe it's the Earl of Oxford. So <laughs> on the day that I arrived to go up to Holy Trinity Church, Stratford, and see the grave and the monument for myself, this is the headline that greets me within about 10 minutes. So, but... I first go to Watford. Now I need to give you background about the book that I'd written. I had written the book that I told you. Julia, the heroine at the end, says, I've found it. It's here. And I'd gone into great detail about where she lived as a kid. And she was the daughter of somebody who was the, related to the people who first announced that they thought it was Oxford. So it had some correspondence to that. But I, I wanted it to be accurate. You know, I, I, and I, I, so I had written that she lived in Watford. And I described the house and the street where she lived. But in those days, Google Maps was not that accurate. You couldn't really see down to the detail. But I thought, well, this is where she'd live. And that's the good distance that makes the rest of the story make sense. I'd written. I'd written a very uh, clear description of the house where she lived in this book. She's the one who's going to solve the Shakespeare mystery. I'd written a gravel driveway 
late Victorian house, huge bay windows, multiple balconies and porches, steep cross-gabled roofs, turret towers, gingerbread trim. I described the inside of the house in detail, French windows leading out onto a spacious back lawn in the garden, and most specific to the story, a wooden shed where her father used to work on his Shakespeare discoveries, and he'd wave to her from the window above a row of violets that he would plant for her. And that's very important because it's an anagram of solve it, violets, solve it. And the Shakespeare codes in the book I had written were going to be mostly anagrams. And anyway, so also critical to the story of Julius Child, who was was, um, by this uh, shed, there were garden gnomes and a large, two large wooden toadstools where she and her father would sit and chat about his findings. I'd written all this. I get my rental car at Heathrow. I drive straight to Watford before going up to Stratford. Mm -hmm. To the street off the A41, it's called Grove Mill Lane, and that's the the street I had chosen. I said she lives on Grove Mill Lane, but I didn't have... So I start taking mental notes about the landscape so as to get it right in the book. What kind of trees and is there a fence along the road? You know, tiny details that would be, oh, that's neat. You know, he's got it exact. (laughs) I parked the car and I decided to walk and see what the houses look like on the street. I... I hadn't picked out an actual house number in my book, just somewhere in the middle. So I'm walking and I poke my head in a driveway where there's a for sale sign. And that makes me bold enough to walk in. And there it is, the house I had written. It wasn't Victorian, but it had the same details, gravel driveway, bay windows, balconies, turret tower, gingerbread trim. Uh, Most shocking of all, the story I'd written features chess as a central motif. It's utterly throughout the whole story, chess games. In fact, codes are played out on a very special chess board. And in fact, a chess set was part of the mock-up cover I'd designed. I walk up towards the front door. I'm I'm calling out, anybody home? Because I want to get shot. But I honestly wasn't thinking that in England. People don't shoot you in England. Or have have guns. That's why you're not going to get your Brexit. (laughs) They'll run at you with a heavy piece of wood. (laughs) But I'm walking. I'm saying, anybody home? You know, but it's had the for sale sign. So I thought I was safe. And just to be sure, I didn't alarm anybody. And I figure I'll say, I saw the for sale sign. Can I look around? And right alongside the home, as the driveway gets to a higher elevation, I see a huge ornamental chessboard, maybe 12, 12 feet square on the ground on, on, on a porch with a couple of large chess pieces. And my heart practically stopped. Oh, my God. Long story short, someone comes out. She says they've sold the house that very morning. <laughs> Literally a couple of hours previously, they hadn't taken the sign down. But I'm welcome to look around. You know, come on in, love. We're very friendly in England. You know, oh, shall I put the I'll put the kettle on. She calls her husband. Would I like some biscuits? <laughs> don't t- don't <laughs> tell me her name was Julia. No, no, okay. it wasn't. Okay. And, but they are, they, you know, they're just so nice. Oh, well, t- tell Arthur about all this, you know. And he comes along, and I go inside, and it's got the French windows overlooking a huge lawn. Just as I wrote, she accompanies me outside. Huge garden. And then I see it way off, 100 yards deep into the garden. They've got a lot of land, way, 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 way down the shed. And the woman can't understand why I've got tears in my my eyes now. (laughs) And I ask, can I I walk all the way to the shed? Yes, of course, love. Yes. And I get to the shed, and it's exactly as I'd written it. There's a little bed of violets alongside it. There's There's garden gnomes, and there's two wooden toadstools to sit on. Wow. I was literally in a state of shock and sort of bliss at the same time. It was completely 
oh my god we spent about an hour uh, i told them why i was there i said i well i can tell you now i've written your house in my story in fact i had my computer with me and i showed them a chapter and they were they were they were, they were as shocked as i was I said, you know this is ridiculous I said, yeah, I, I know. It's I, I don't know, but to me, it's another synchro. It's another sign. I'm on the right track. You know, this is being guided somehow. I, I, I honestly. So you know, we have the tea, we have the biscuits. The guy, <laughs> the guy, <laughs> pulls out. He says, "Come here, I want to show you something." He goes to his um, uh, bookcases and he pulls out uh, a set of Shakespeare's works. It's not. It's not. A, it's not. You know, a very, uh, very uh, expensive one or anything, but he's got all Shakespeare's works there. <laughs> uh, so I'm thinking, oh, my God. So anyway, I went very happy out there and I drive up to Stratford. Uh, and I get there, I get in the hotel and the next day I'm at the church for the first time in my life. And <clears throat> my goal was to take pictures of the grave and the monument. And I'm ostensibly sort of looking for codes, you know, because I'd read a bit about codes and maybe they were they were hidden in in, in what's written on the gravestone because the gravestone makes no sense and the monument makes no sense. Uh, I won't go into it, you know, right now. Anybody can look at it. It's just crazy stuff. It doesn't even have Shakespeare's name on the grave. It's only Jesus's name on the grave. But anyway, I wanted to take pictures, but it's roped off. You can't see the grave. And uh, well, you can see it, but you can't go past this rope where the public aren't allowed to go and look close. You couldn't get in and have a close up look at it, close up look at the at the monument. So again, these synchros just they start happening. I, I'm there literally ten minutes, and this guy comes up to me, very very neatly dressed, uh, snaps a picture of me. He's in a nice nice suit, tie, polished shoes, and he says his name is John Cheel. He's uh, been at the church for 18 years. He's the verger, uh, but he's also the guy that takes all the photos of the church. He says, I've got tens of that. I tell him I'm, I'm researching a book, you know, and I wanted to, mm, I'm a bit disappointed. I wanted to be able to see it up close. So I'm going to get some pictures of the grave. He says, oh, I've got tens of thousands of photos. W- would you like to, see- <laughs> would I like to see them? Oh, an hour later, I'm at his home uh, having tea. Again, you know, tea and biscuits and his wife's there. And, ooh, isn't this and he's showing me all these, these photos and they're absolutely world-class, beautiful. And he says, I can use any of them in my book. Oh. She just, just fell into place. We go back to the church and we meet this woman. She's the treasurer and she goes, now, <laughs> she goes, ooh, you look. No, no, you're not look. She said, ooh, you sound just like Davy Jones. No, no way. <laughs> Well, because I was, you know, when I get back into England, I'm speaking with my Manchester accent again. You can't help it. You know, when you go back home and it just, oh, you sound just like Davy Jones. So I tell her, I said, honestly, I said, I was his musical director. Oh, I'm a big fan. So I get a book out and I sign it for her and I give it to her. And now I'm in like Flynn. You know, I'm, I'm completely, where do you want to see? What would you like to do? I, I mean, I, uh, John Shield, the next couple of days is photographing me behind in the gravestone, looking at the monument, looking at the altar. Gradually, I, ha- I end up doing, you know, it just opened the door completely. Every door was opened and gradually, I, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I was to have six visits there over the next four years. I helped them. I designed a calendar for them for them to sell in their gift shop so that they could raise money for their, their needs for windows and stuff. We started to talk about a Davy Jones fundraiser. I, we, I, they just loved me. They, I was, you know, I was helping them out because I was ingratiating myself because I knew I needed to get in there and see a lot of stuff. So <laughs> I get back home after this after this first trip, 
And I've been reading now. Now we begin to find out, you know, some names. Who's involved in this? Who who's doing these these encodings? If there are any encodings, I've been reading about John Dee. He's the leading mathematician and cryptographer of the Renaissance. Queen Elizabeth's astrologer and chief spy. She sent him to Europe. His code number was 007. Ian Fleming uh, knew this story and stole that number for for James Bond. He's a fascinating character. He's everything that you'd want in a in a, in a mystical character. He's a magus. He's like the original Dumbledore. He's got a long white beard and he wears magician's clothes. <laughs> oh, is and he the D- guy on your webpage? On the webpage? When web you first page, go to To Be or Not To Be, there's that little dude kind of looks like that? Uh, no. Uh, no, he's not on the, he's not on the first web, on the webpage, no. But there's, he's... I, I don't actually go into him on the web page because, as you already can see, this is too much to, to too much information. <laughs> you know, you got to commit to really getting to know it. So I'm telling it you all, and you can use what you, what you want to use. But, but I didn't. Oh, I, I guess that's like, Shakespeare. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's Shakespeare on the website. That's the official story of Shakespeare. That's the official picture of Shakespeare. And there's also a picture of me, uh, but I put his head on a on a tuxedo guy. Anyway, so D uh, John D. He writes in an important document, and he's he's the he's the leading math guy. He's the leading cryptographer. He's I've already figured out that he must be. If you were wanting, if Shakespeare was wanting to do code, the only person he could t- turn to was John. He was absolutely the guy. Plus, it's known that John Dee was the model that Shakespeare used for um, the for the Tempest. Prospero, Prospero, the magician in the Tempest, was based on John Dee, and that's even agreed by the Orthodox scholars. So D had an important document about codes. It was called the Monas Hieroglyphica. And in it, he wrote, in it be not one superfluous dot and not one dot wanting. In other words, all the dots that I've put in here are important. Now, you remember what I said at the beginning? Mm-hmm. There's all dots on the cover of the sonnets that I connected and that gave you 12 mathematical constants. I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know that. I just knew that this was important. He's talking about dots. I believe he's giving us a clue to how he works. But he was also very misunderstood because as a magician, as a magus, he spent eight years communing with angels in seances. He's famous for this, and he's famous for a document that he says the angels dictated to him called the Enochian Tables. Wow. Okay. And in my research, this very famous work, I find it was dictated to him on June 24th. That's six. Two four in fifteen eighty four, and that's twenty years to the day before Oxford dies under very mysterious circumstances. June twenty fourth, sixteen o four. So this was dictated to John Dee by angels, right? On June twenty fourth, six two four. Now I'm looking at the Enochian tables. They have exactly six hundred twenty four squares in them with 624 characters in them. And they're all supposed to be the names of angels. But I'm noticing, well, there's 624 everywhere. Oxford dies on 624, 624 characters, dictated on 624. What's going on here? I've also been looking by now at the sonnet's dedication. It's a very cryptic dedication. It makes no sense. Again, I won't get into it, but people can read it. It's just madness. Many scholars before me have tried to break the code of it. And uh, without success. And one of its most strange aspects is it has dots between every single word. (laughs) 
word dot word dot word dot word dot like this. It's crazy. Now, in all cryptography, generally dots and punctuation are not counted. So this is why it hasn't been solved. All the major encryptors who are looking for it, they don't count the dots. They don't count the periods, punctuation. But I'm completely, I mean, I'm ignorant. I don't know about that. And on a hunch, I start counting all the characters in Shakespeare's grave and the monument, including the punctuation and the dots, and all the characters in the mysterious sonnet's dedication, and it's 624 characters. <laughs> so this can't be a coincidence. A real-life Renaissance synchro. Wow. So I match up the 624 characters. I, I take a copy of the, the Enochian tables, its actual grid structure. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful square, and it's got a, four quadrants in it, like a grid with 156 characters in each quadrant, adding up to 624 characters. So I, I do a dummy one of those, and I put the grave monument and sonnet's dedication in there. Bingo. Perfect fit. Perfect. All you need to know is what's the key. If this is, you know, in, in, in cryptography, you have... Um, the cipher text and the plain text. Cipher text is the is the hidden part that you're not you don't know, and the plain text is the reveal of oh, this is what he's really it's what he's really saying. And I won't go into it because it's a bit long, but basically, I know that the key is double T, two two T letters. There are two T letters in the very cover of the sonnets. There are two T letters at the bottom of this dedication, and in many other places, I've I've already found out that the key would be double T. I just need to find the Rosetta Stone to put it into. So I decode. I put. I point the double T's across to the Enochian tables. There's a message. It's incomplete, but it's very clear. So I think if this is real, there must be instructions for the rest of the message somewhere in Shakespeare's works. Well, we all know in Hamlet there's a play within a play. But who knows that in Twelfth Night there's a code within a code. There's a scene where Malvolio, a character in Twelfth Night, is trying to solve a code. And he reads, he reads it aloud. He says, M-O-A-I doth sway my life. And he keeps on repeating it, M-O-A-I, mm, M-O, and he's trying to figure this out. And it's never figured out in the play. It's like a complete non sequitur. It's like, what was that about? You never find out what the code is in the play. You're not supposed to. It's a code for us to figure out later. And a sentence later, he says, if this fall into thy hand, revolve. Well, nobody's, I mean, nobody's done the simple thing, which is, well, revolve it. If you revolve M-O-A-I, it's I-A-O-M. And IAOM, I found out, I'm not a Mason, but, but now you can find anything online. It's the Freemasons' most secret, sacred code of all time, IAOM. It's revealed to initiates over the course of years. They're given one letter, M, then they're given another letter, O, then they're given another letter, A, and maybe 25 years later, if they're good enough, they finally get given the I, and then they're told, we tricked you, it's all backwards. So they wouldn't have been able to solve anything with it in the first place. You have to revolve it. And here's Shakespeare saying in Twelfth Night, if this fall into thy hand revolve, M-O-A-I doth sway my life. They're finally given the I, and it's a, it's a breathing technique. It's yoga, pranayama technique that the Rosicrucians used and later Freemasons as their means to say I can reach enlightenment just like yogis do by breathing this word I-A-O-M in a certain pronunciation of it and that's hidden in 12th night now this is you know all the plays are in a book called the first folio that was only printed in 1623 seven years after Shakespeare dies 
the most expensive book in the, on the planet, most expensive printed book. The last one that went on on auction at Sotheby's fetched six and a half million pounds for what? No, but sorry, dollars. Six and a half million dollars for one book. And they actually say it's a it's a fabulous book. It would be even more expensive if only they'd done a good printing job. They say they botched the printing job because there's so many page number errors in it. So all these page numbers are wrong. Ah. And I thought, okay, mm-hmm. I know this is one of his techniques because I'd found it somewhere else. For instance, there's no number as high as 426. The common is the histories and the tragedies. They go up to about... 200 or 300. So there's no 426 or 624 because you finish the commentaries and then they start again from one. But the entire book is about a thousand pages. And at the end, the, the last uh, number uh, should be 399, three, uh, three, nine, rather. But it's a mistake. It's 993. It's reversed, just like the MOAI. It's, it's, it's a mirror image, revolve it. It's a clue to say, yeah, I've got the wrong page numbers are a clue. So I look for 426. There's no 426. But the next one down that you can even have is 264. And on the top of page 264 is that very scene, the MOAI scene. And what it says at the top of that page number, 264, it says, no man must know. No man must know. The number's altered. No man must know. <laughs> All right. And you look across to the right of 264, and obviously it should be 265, but it's 273. The numbers have been altered. What? He's telling us now in code in the first folio, and there are over 60 of these, and I've actually found that they're all part of an enormous code. There are mirror images everywhere, and you're always being asked to, you know, revolve it, turn it around, you know. All right, so now, same as in the sonnets, there's, there's, uh, there's one altered number in the sonnets. Sonnets go number, they go from number 114 to 115 to 119, <laughs> and then 117, 118, 119, etc. So number 116 has been altered to 119. No reason. Everybody says it's a printing error. Nothing to, you know, move along, folks. Nothing to see here. Well, the sonnets are all about time. And I figured if he's using them as a calendar to mark certain days of the year that are specifically parts of the clues, then, you know, sonnet one would be January 1, sonnet two would be January 2nd, etc. through all the sonnets. Maybe that's what he's doing. Not saying it's a total calendar, but he's using that as a code. So I thought, well, what, what day does sonnet 116 represent, you know, the 116th day of the year is it's April 26, 426. <laughs> so the date we have in writing for Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's baptism, that's in the Holy Trinity Church. He was baptized on 426, April 26. Mm-hmm. And from that, scholars presume his birthday to be April 23rd. But day 116, sonnet 116 is 426. And the sonnet itself he writes, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds. Oh, no, it is an ever-fixed mark. He's talking about altering and alteration. The number's been altered. And the last two lines are, if this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. He's saying, I've never wrote a thing and no, no one ever loved. If this is an error, if this is really an error, it's a clue. He's telling us. So he uses altered. He uses the word alter, apostrophe, D, altered numbers to draw our attention to clues as to how to break the code. The numbers altered, no man must know. Mm. So now 
realize there's a 624426 key, right? The 624 in the in the Enochian in the tables, but 426. Well, I look further. Yeah. De Vere dies on 624. Shakespeare is baptized on the opposite, 426. Turns out they're both fixed. De Vere faked his death, and this actual 426 of a baptism is a, is a complete fix. And I've actually proven that, but I can't, uh, no time to go into all of that now. So I study the Enochian tables, and I see the same TT key in, is in, and you know, I've got one message by sending the grave monument and sonnets across in 624 characters into the Enochian table, 624 characters. It sort of points out these letters, and there's a message. And I think, oh, okay, revolve. Now, this never happens in cryptography, that the plain text and the ciphertext both have the same key in them. Just this doesn't happen, but it's here. This is amazing. So I track now backwards. I find the TT uh, key in the Enochian tables pointing back to the grave monuments on it. Mirror imaging, second message. But it's still not complete. So I revolve the Enochian tables as is turn it upside down. And now the grave monument sonnets key is pointing to completely different letters. There's a third message. And now you run it back from the Enochians back to the, the grave, a fourth message. It's, it's bloody, it's absolutely perfect. And now it's perfectly clear. And what it says is, living page, yo stigmata, I have hewn desiderata. Now, a living page is simply saying there's, there's a document, there's something has been uh, kept alive, kept for you here, living. It's, it's, a, it's alive, it's been kept for posterity. Yo stigmata is a bit tricky, but yo in Middle English means look at, but not just look at, it means really look at. It has this connotation of really pay attention to, look clearly at. Yo, stigmata. Stigmata are Christ's wounds, the two wounds in the hands, two in the feet, and the spear in the side. They're found in all Catholic churches where in the Holy of Holies altar stone, where mass is celebrated. There's a Holy of Holies altar stone in Shakespeare's church, it's called the Holy Trinity Church, right by his grave and monument. <laughs> Living page, look at the stigmata. I have hewn, that can only have one meaning. Hewn means cut into stone. We don't use the word very much now, but I have cut into stone. Desiderata is Latin for my desires, what I want you to know. I've cut into stone and left a document inside there under Christ's stigmata wounds where I have told you what I want you to know. Oh, my God. And it's absolutely clear. And it's not only that, it's a, it's a Shakespearean rhyming couplet. Living page, yo stigmata, I have yundesiderata. It's the way Shakespeare writes his rhyming couplets. He's put proof of his mystery, his identity, his story, inside the altar in Shakespeare's church. So, <laughs> you want to take a pause, a break? <laughs> um, Not really. You got, you got us in, on the hook here. Okay, the next synchro comes up then. The very night that I finally cracked that, what I've just told you, I know, I know it's in the altar. Jeez, how am I going to get in the altar? In, that, a, chur in that church you were at, right? The, that you've been to six times or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's in that altar. He's telling us it's there. He's telling you, I've left actual proof inside the altar. And what would I want you to know? He's telling us why there's a cover-up. Well, this is the holy grail of literature. I mean, man, this is this is it. Even if it's only a grocery list, they could pin it on a wall. It'd be the next Mona Lisa. People would flock from all over the world to see Shakespeare's writing. I mean, they could charge whatever they wanted for it forever. 
price list, but it's not it's not a grocery list. Obviously, it's very important. He's going to do a lot to leave this for us and to encode it to get past the censors of of the king of King James. Oh, oh my God! So I'm you can imagine I'm 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 utterly excited. I finally, I cracked it. I know where it is, and I I drive I drive out to where my daughter is uh, waitressing at a, a very posh restaurant in Beverly Hills, and I. I I, I go in and I order something and I say, Alana, I got it. I found it. I know where it is. And we have a chat and we have a laugh and it's all great. And I drive back home just in bliss. You know, I'm drunk with I, with just the whole feeling of it. And I park my car in my garage and I clip the side view mirror as I'm backing in. And I, I mean, I could show you this, but my, my video is not on and I'll, I'll send you a, a picture of it. I mean, the uh, listeners still can't see it, but we'll send a link to it. I, I clipped the, 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 the mirror on, my, on the driver's side, smashed it, and I look at it and it's in the shape of a V. It's utterly, it's all splintered out in the shape of a V and I counted all the splits in it and there are 17 exact splits in the shape of a V with a cross right in the middle of it, which is exactly the code. I mean, seven, he's the 17th out of the box. He uses number 17 over and over and over again in his codes. And my mirror split into 17 shards with the cross, which is actually inverted. You know, I'm going, oh, well, okay. Mirror synchro. Thank you. So now I know just from the codes, but they're perfect. I know it. I know we've got it, but it's going to be a hard slog uh, to, to, to get into that altar. Uh, but I also find stunning confirmation from John Dee's diaries. In his diaries, he has April 10th, 1584. He has one of the biggest angel sessions. <laughs> I mean, I, I know this is all hard to take, but, you know, hey, we, we, you know. He's he's into the angels, and he has a psychic who sees them. He's not clairvoyant himself, but he sees them, and the psychic delivers what the angels say to him and to him, and he writes it down, and that's the way they work. And they reveal through this uh, psychic, what is called a scryer, we'd call him now just a psychic. His name's Edward Kelly. And John Dee is given instructions. The angels are giving him instructions on this day to put seven bundles into a very large altar stone. <laughs> now, he never says where this altar stone is, but I know where it is. I'm going, he's being told to put something into this very large altar stone. The altar stone is nine foot by three foot wide by two foot deep, and it weighs three tons. It's been there for 800 years. And the vision is so intense for Kelly that he says he can't count all the, the letters that the angels are showing him. He says they say they're infinite. They call it the vision of the Holy Trinity. He's being given basically a, a, a divine conscious experience. And the angels call it the vision of the Holy Trinity. And he's in, an, in a super uh, enlightened state. And they're telling him to put seven articles he never states what, into this large altar stone. Well, the altar stone in, in Holy Trinity is, is right behind where Shakespeare's buried. It's called the Holy of Holies. It's where Mass is celebrated. And there it is. And, and so, oh, as if I needed confirmation, but there it is. It's written in his diary. So now I've completely solved the code, uh, and I know I have to protect it. And now I've got to get, I've, I've got to get, 
to the altar and you know how this this pans out i'll try and be quick I, I i spend these six trips there i'm gradually ingratiating myself they like me i'm being very helpful to them i'm doing all kinds of good deeds for them so i'm getting in they let me film wherever i want to and finally i'm given permission to actually play and perform excerpts from my musical bard in front of the congregation on shakespeare's birthday april 23rd there's, the whole town is in massive celebrations. Every year they have these huge celebrations. Tens of thousands of people come. They line the streets. They run. They come to the church. They, 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 they put flowers at Shakespeare's grave. They really are worshiping him. Really, I mean, it's it's become sort of a deifying thing. And this is their biggest biggest day in their whole calendar. And it's I'm, probably the wrong guy and the wrong day. It's the wrong guy and the wrong date. And I'm. I've been given permission to. I think Christmas is like that too. (laughs) 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 Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So anyway, and you know how it comes out and anybody can go to the website and, and get the story. But in brief, I will say I knew I had to get there. I knew they would never give me permission. I actually went to... You know, I wanted to ask you about that. You went to a cryptographer, didn't you? Well, yeah, because who am I? You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, 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 it makes sense that a, a musician would crack a mathematical code because we're trained in, yeah. in, in that. We, we get to see patterns. Also, I had no, no training in, cryptogra- in cryptography. Therefore, I skipped that whole thing about not counting the dots. I, yeah, I count the dots. And there it is. So, I mean, he's using his dots that way. So, you know, I was very lucky and, and I got it and there it was. And obviously, there's a lot of work involved, but it's not surprising. But still, how am I going to prove this to anybody? The first question they're going to ask is, are you a Shakespeare PhD? No. Um, I have any experience in cryptography? No. What do you do? Well, I was David Jones' piano player once. <laughs> That's going to come with some sway. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Give me, give me some slack. Why not? Okay. So it's not going to work. So I, I contact the... V, the present day, if it were a present day version of John D, it's Whitfield Diffie. And he, in the late 60s, early 70s, I believe, along with Diffie Hel- and Hellman, they basically cracked a thing that was considered for 2,000 years utterly impossible. And that was how to pass a code uh, from person to person without it being intercepted at, at a distance. It was considered impossible, and he's known as the person that solved this, and it's called public key distribution. And thanks to his basic algorithm at the start, he basically made uh, secure online encryption possible. Every time we click send, buy on the internet, his algorithm is buried somewhere deep in there. Now, other people took took it and changed it somewhat, but he's the guy. So I, I I wrote to him and he said, well, I charge $500 an hour and I'd have to read your whole notes and book and blah, blah, blah. And it's going to, you know, and I could see a multi-thousand dollar bill coming. Uh, <laughs> so I said, well, hmm, well, I can't really do that. He says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, come and buy me dinner at my uh, at a place of my choosing <laughs> and I'll see what you've got and we can just talk about it. I was like, you know, well, very nice, very gracious. So I go up to uh, Silicon Valley where he lives and uh, Palo Alto actually and I'm, I go in and uh, to this 
place and I'm with him. And, and, and first, to be honest, it was not seeming to me going very well because I couldn't get a word in. He's holding forth there. Everybody knows him. It's the place where he's famous and they all come. It's, his, it's a restaurant that he goes to all the time and people are coming up to him. Hey, Diff, what have you discovered this week? Hey, man. And they start talking complicated Mensa level math. And I'm sitting there at the table thinking, when am I going to get a chance to show him this? And a couple of hours goes by. And in this time, I actually look to my side and there's a mural on the wall. And I'm, I'm realizing, oh, my. And the face in the middle of the mural is Whitfield Diffie. <laughs> He's a star. And he brought me there to say that. In other words, I mean, he was basically saying, look, I'm with Diffie. I'm on the mural. You're a piano player. Your move. What do you got? And, and he knew that people would be coming up and stuff. And I'm, I'm not knocking him. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. But, you know, it was a bit of a pissing contest. And <laughs> just, okay. So I said, oh, God, well, I'm going to have to show you something very quickly. I said, have you ever come across this? You know, uh, ciphertext, plain text. Here's the docking tables. Here's the grave, sonnet, monument. Same number, 624. There's a key. It's double T. It points across. And there's a message. Uh-huh. What about that? Well, that was like telling the two times table to Einstein. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he looks at me and he just goes, mm-hmm. All right. But he's looking at me, you know, now at least. And I'm thinking, okay. I said, ah, but have you ever seen the same key in the opposite direction pointing from the plain text back to the ciphertext? And that gives you another message. And now he's really staring at me. He is, yo, stigmatering me. He's, yo, he's really looking. And he's going, okay, all right. And he doesn't take his eyes off me. And I said, and then if this falls into thy hand revolve, if I turn this upside down, there's another message. And then if I, re- if I mirror image it again, there's a fourth message. And the message says it's in the altar. And he looked at me and he, he basically, he's not willing to go out on a limb and say, yeah, but what he says to me is, he says, this is what he said. He said, if I were you, I would scan that altar with radar before you publish. Because if you publish and it really is true that there's something there. You know, we've got a multi-billion dollar tourism industry rests on this. If you prove it someone else, they're not going to like that. You've got the multi-billion dollar academic industry that have been telling a myth for 400 years. They're not going to like it. And in some other way, it actually affects the monarchy as well, which I haven't gone into. And literally, you know, it says you better prove this scientifically because they're never going to let you just say it's there. You've got, you've got to get proof. And that's what made me think, okay, I've got to go. I've got to go and, go and do it. So now, anyway, I've got permission. I'm, de- I'm, I'm, I'm at the dress rehearsal for the show. I put up a large banner advertising the musical. It says, Bard by Alan William Green, a, a musical, Act 1, Act 2, to be, Act 1, to be, Act 2, not to be. And it's a beautiful thing, and I had it I had it made. It's, you know, I had it printed out at home. We took it over with us. I took a film crew with me. I We rented a scanning device from somewhere in Leeds, I think it was, and we, we had to practice with it for a couple of days to find out how to use it, but it had to be small enough that, that it wouldn't be noticed. It would just look, look like some of the rest of the film equipment, right? And we had to have a, an actual person who was able to use the scanner, and I had to non-disclose them. They were all sworn to see and had about six people involved in this whole thing and we're doing the dress rehearsal and my scanner person puts a, 
a safety uh, precaution thing down on the on the altar because we've placed the banner in front of the altar so all the audience from watching me play the piano can't see what's going on behind the banner we've absolutely obscured the altar and then for the last number of the show i put i say let's uh, turn off all the lights in the church and let's do this in homage to william shakespeare by candlelight we lit candles on the piano on the grave by the monument, and there behind the banner, we were scanning the altar. And he had three and a half minutes to do it in while I'm singing Sonnet 18, which I put to music. And we had a person filming it in night vision because we would have to prove it. And it looks like a, it looks like a SWAT team in Afghanistan. It's all in green. And you see him scanning, rolling this uh, radar scanner over the altar back and forth, back and forth while I'm singing thing. And at the end, applause, lights up. We did it. Nobody knew we'd done it. And we had scanned the altar and we go back to our hotel and we send two zip files of what is on the scanner to two of the leading radar labs in America. And we wait for the results. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, a holy of holies altar stone, Catholic altar stone, has got to have a tiny hole in it where Rome has sent relics of a saint. It's called a saint's cavity. Whoever they define as a saint, they send over a couple of slivers of bone, maybe a bit of his writings, his or her writings, maybe a bit of their clothing, and they put it in a tiny gold, silver, or lead box. Very interesting. Uh, gold, silver, or lead uh, from Merchant of Venice. <laughs> and then they put it inside, they cut a hole in the underside of the altar stone. They put the, la the, the container inside with the saint's relics and they put a small piece of the actual rock back in, they cement it back into place and then they carve five, yo uh, five of the stigmata wounds of Christ on the surface of the altar. And now it's considered consecrated and that's where the sacred mystery of mass can now be celebrated. That means anybody that prays at that altar, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I'm just saying in their religion, that means I can pray there now. It's mass and my prayers will be answered. Okay, so that's it. There's the stigmata wounds. It's the Holy of Holies altar. It's got to have a tiny area in it. And we, when we learned how to use the radar scanner for a couple of days, the guy said to me, um, what are you scanning? And we just said, oh, it's just a big stone in, in, in somewhere. And we didn't tell him what it was, obviously. And, and it's just a big block of stone. And he said, well, it should look solid, but, it, uh, but we suspect there's a, somebody's hidden something in it. He said, oh, well, wherever there's a hidden, if there's a hole in it, it will look like a tiny little blue on, on the radar scan. So it should be this tiny little blue. And as you've seen on the actual film of it, hey, no, it's 250 times the size it's supposed to be. The entire altar stone is practically hollow. It must have taken them two years to do it. I mean, you can't imagine you're cutting into the hardest rock on the planet with uh, whatever they had then, chisels, chiseling away. Any wrong slip, they could have split the whole thing open. They've cut and cut and cut and cut and cut in an enormous cavity, 250 times the size it's supposed to be, this great big blue blotch. And not only that, 
at certain resolutions, as you change the resolution on the scan, you see that there are little lines indicating that there are things inside there. Ah, that's what I was going to ask, wondering if you could see what's in there. And both labs confirm the exact same And both right? labs, in, independent of each other, using different software, not aware of each other, showed exactly the same results. And bingo, we got it. We got the proof. We got actual scientific proof. But still, I couldn't say anything about it because... I knew that if that got out at that time, I was, you know, I, I, I just wanted all my ducks in a row. I knew there was more coming, first of all, uh, from the codes. And I, I, I also knew that, you know, if I just, I go out there and just say, I've scanned the altar. But, well, you know, the first thing that the church is going to do is go and scan it themselves. They probably think Alan Green's a, a nutcase, but we'd better go check it just in case. I just don't uh, bash it open with a hammer. And they would go, well, no, they wouldn't do that. You know, no, it's, no, it's, Darren's it, asking if he could. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Would you do that for me? That's I, great. I don't know. If there was something in there, do you think they'd turn the other cheek? That's the thing. Like you probably only got a couple of minutes. So you got to yeah. get in there. You're a couple guys, you pull out your hammers and you bash it open and you got to hope whatever's in there is good. Cause if it's not, you are fucked. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, if it's good, maybe you get off the hook. If it's like, you know, something crazy, you're like, no, look, look. That's true, eh? <laughs> like, if, if it was good, like, if it was some, like, long lost poems from Shakespeare or from, like, the oh, 17th right. Earl of Oxford, you'd be a hero, even though you yeah. just destroyed well, the altar. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> how could they arrest you after that? Well, you'd be like Nicolas Cage on, uh, what's that movie where he's solving Fresh. mysteries? Fresh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, if I'm in prison, maybe Nick Cage will play me in, in the blockbuster <laughs> of it. That might be good. But I, I really would prefer to avoid that. And I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> thinking, OK, so I, I kept it under wraps for a long time because I, I knew other stuff was coming. And I thought if I just say it willy nilly, first of all, you know, um, if I'm really the only person that knows this, you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't want my Prius to blow up accidentally. And so I, you know, the thing is, if you, if, if it's, if it's Shakespeare, the man from Stratford, yes, I'd be a hero in, in Stratford. This is the proof that they've been wanting all along. It means the question goes away finally. Nobody says anymore. I wonder if he wrote it. But if it's Edward de Vere or somebody else, I won't be very popular. And all of their, you know, actually their tourism will increase because people will visit there just to see, visit the scene of the crime. But it, it's not the same receiving money for, shamefacedly, as it is receiving money, you know, for come look at look at the bard, you know. So... But altogether, yeah, their, their, their tourism would increase, but it, it wouldn't be a good situation ultimately for them. What it means is that Stratford would cease over a certain amount of time to be the center of attention and uh, De Vere's birthplace would become the new Disneyland. And that's and what would happen. Um, where, is his, anyway, where is he from? He's Headingham Castle. He was brought up in a, in a place called Headingham and it's a fabulous little town. And I would oh, advise would you to... I hate that. People would just hate that if it went from some like poor dude to some like dude who lives in a fucking castle. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you heard it first here. It would be pretty smart to buy land in Headingham. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a hotel. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice bed and breakfast. Yeah, that's right. All right. So the last thing, Crow, before I get onto the math, my God, how long have we been going? We've been going to. Two hours. I don't mind, but I mean, I don't know how you're going to put this into one podcast, but 
maybe you do split it up. I don't know. But um, maybe you don't want to do that. I'm not telling you how to do it. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying we haven't even touched the math yet. But the math is much short. I'm just going to because I can't show the images and I'm just telling them. And we're not very good at math. Math. Um, yeah. Math. It's well, going to be so over. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it isn't because I don't go. That's the thing. People all, you know, they always say, well, I'm not good at math. I don't like math. You know, frankly, we're doing math all the time. I mean, we calculate our our bill, what our tip should be. We're always looking at the price of things. How much do they earn? Can I afford this? We're thinking math all the time. We just think that we don't really know advanced math. And so when I give it in these uh, presentations, as you know from seeing them, you know, I don't ask, I don't put a burden on people. They don't have to do any math. I just show them the visuals of it. And it's pretty painless. Uh, So when you're seeing geometry, it's all pretty. And you, you don't have to know, but... For those who want to know, obviously, I've got to be able to prove it. So I've got another site somewhere where all the painstaking proof is. But I'll just give you one. The one last uh, integral uh, synchro from this is is that you in, remember in Dee's diaries, they called it the Holy Trinity vision, telling him to put seven objects inside the altar stone. Well, I eventually give a talk at uh, Concordia University um, showing that uh, I've Figured it out, and it's in the altar. And uh, it goes it goes very well, though I must admit some of them were completely nonplussed by it because they don't like codes. This is a Shakespeare audience, by the way, not a, not a mathematical audience. It's a Shakespeare crowd who, who believe that it's somebody other than the man from Stratford, and that's their whole agenda. And I'm there showing them that I, all the work I've done, and look, here's the altar. And there's symbols on the altar that point to it being Edward de Vere, and I've scanned it and blah, blah, blah. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but it goes well, and we go outside, and my daughter's there, and a few people are there, friends are there, and we're all laughing and having a great time. I said, oh, wasn't that great? It was terrific. We're standing outside my rental car, and finally we said, well, somebody says, hungry, let's go. I mean, we, we're literally, it's as though we're just unconsciously standing there waiting for time to tick by but we're not aware of this and then all of a sudden after we've talked for maybe half an hour and a half somebody says I'm hungry let's get in the car and go we get in the car switch it on and the clock says 624 and we all go what (laughs) what and that's a little synchro, right? And we all scream with joy and we think it's funny. And later back at home in L.A., I'm, I, I, I'm looking at Dee's diaries, Holy Trinity Vision, and I find out that he did this on a certain date, April 10th, in a certain year. It was an angel session. And I look at it and I realize, I, just, I gave my talk on April 10th. The first public revealing of what I then called the Holy Trinity Solution. I hadn't read this thing about D and the angels at that point, calling it the vision of the Holy Trinity or that it was in the altar. I hadn't read that because D's diaries are so extensive. There's tons and tons and tons. But I hadn't come across it. You've got to really, really be looking at it over and over. This is why this thing took 12 years. And I'm, I'm looking and I finally find it after the fact, after I've given the first public talk saying the Holy Trinity solution, it's in the altar. April 10th. And I look at it and I see D was given this revelation about putting stuff in the altar on April 10th on a certain year. And I calculate it and I swear to God, it's no. four. It's 426 years to the day. That's too many synchros. That is too crazy. Nice. It's John D's vision of the Holy Trinity vision and me giving my Holy Trinity solution talk to the public saying it's in the altar. 
And what do you do with that? What can you do with that? You, you talk just to Grey America and get Darren to rate it. Darren, no, I'm, that's no, got to be a 10. No, what I mean is what do you do about that synchro? I mean, you, you, I was walking around for days thinking, how do these angels choreograph this? How did they get me? I could have talked on any day. It was a three-day uh, conference. They could have put me on on Friday or Sunday, but no, they put me on on Saturday, April 10th, so that it was 426 years to the day. I, 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 and you're going, what? What? Who's who's writing this? So anyway, that's that. And now you've got all the poetic codes and you know where it is and it's in the altar. And my push is for people to go to website to be or not to be.org and on there they can vote and i you know the only way that this is going to happen there's a question there it's called there's a vote tab you go there click on there and it says two questions do you want to know uh, it says you vote either yes or no the question is to be or not to be opened i'm asking the public do you want to open this altar and find out what it is obviously we want to open it and find out what it is and the two questions are you, you vote yes I want to know what Shakespeare left for posterity or no. Not so, in so even Leslie. though this is out in the open, now the church won't do it? I don't even know if the church even knows about it yet because still, you know, I'm not uh, world famous and, no, you know, this hasn't gone much. For, I only revealed it. I only went public with this three months ago. Oh, okay. And, and I've got maybe 250 votes. I mean, it's only when it gets to be 10,000 50,000 that it will catch up and be viral. But we need it to be viral because that's the only way that we can bring pressure. We can be at Stratford the next day with a microphone in their faces saying, you know, a million people voted to open your altar. What are you going to do about it? What I'd love to happen would be, you know, Oprah gets a hold of it and she goes there. Or somebody with clout goes there and says, you know, there's a whole movement here. Look at this. There's a scan of your altar. This guy scanned it and there's proof. There's physical proof. Are you going to open it? Then they can't do anything. They've got to, under pressure, open it and we will find out. But until then, you know, it's not a story and it won't ever have traction. So I'm asking people to just go there, you know, go there, vote, vote your conscience, vote no if you want. But the, 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 the second question is no, I'm not interested. Let's leave it another 400 years. In other words, it's a bit, <laughs> I'm being a bit obvious with the questions, but obviously, obviously we want to know and the public are mostly are going to want to know. So, so far I've got 250 votes and two no votes. You know, two people. <laughs> I voted. You voted no? Yeah, no, I voted oh. yes, of course. We got, we got to get our UK posse. We have a bunch yeah, of listeners in the UK, posse. UK too. That. We might be able to get one of them to go bash that fucker open. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you think, and it's just, it's great. But, you know, I mean, that's that's what we've got to do. In other words, you know, on a serious level, Whoever was Shakespeare, and I do believe it was De Vere, but still, I'm open. And I mean, if it, if it turns out to be a massive, massive cover-up, and it really was Shakespeare being very, very clever all along, I, I'm, I, it doesn't matter to me. I just want the crown to be on the right head, and we'll only find out by finding out what's in that altar, because he's told us so. He said, I've put it in the altar. Now, what more do you want? This is literally King Tut's tomb. And it's sitting there waiting, and the scan shows that there's a ton of stuff in there. It could be all the manuscripts. It could be Hamlet, Midsummer Night's Dream, Twelfth Night, Othello. It could be the sonnets. I, mean, I know it's the sonnets because he says so. The sonnets themselves are in there in his own hand. That will be a priceless artifact. And there are other things that I'm not willing to say at this point that I believe are in there because he's, he's not just left these codes. He's left, God, 12, 14 
16 codes all over the place. He's left codes in the first folio, in the numbering, in the wrong page numbers, you know, so he's made sure that this would be found eventually. It's big. It's the holy grail of literature. But it goes even bigger than that in the second half because, damn it, what's he doing? He's saying, look at the Great Pyramid. What? He writes about the pyramid in, in, in obviously, in Antony Cleopatra because that's set in Egypt, but also at the end of uh, Twelfth Night. No, not Twelfth Night. Hold on. I'm flagging here. At the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a scene uh, where the mechanicals are going to uh, perform from a play, and the play they choose is called Pyramus and Thisbe. Pyramus and Thisbe, and there's all kinds of codes hidden in that. And in fact, the page numbers in the folio again are all changed to show you. Look at this scene, and then he should, there's there's, I mean, there's just a load of places where he's saying, "Look at the altar." Not to mention that, as I said at the beginning, he's put the actual geographic coordinates of the Great Pyramid right there in the angles of, that are revealed. <sighs> so all I need to do to, to sum up that last, it's not long actually, because as I say I can't show it to you. People will have to go to see the images. It's much, much more convincing than so. You'll put some links on, I suppose, about where it is, where it is to be found. Yeah, for um, sure. I, I'll just send you them. I don't, I don't know offhand to say them because they're complex uh, links. But YouTube has a bunch of these videos that I've made showing the mathematical findings. So how did they get onto the mathematical findings? I, I literally have done six years. That brings us up to scanning the altar. And and then all of a sudden, I start to find these uh, other hints in the wrong page numbers that are talking about, look at the Great Pyramid, and then look at the cover of the sun. And then, and then and I know where to go, because now I know how it works. It's, it's dots, you know, he says, not not one superfluous dot and not one dot wanting. In other words, all the dots I put there are important. They're important. So I see the cover and I realize, oh, well, there's dots here. It, it looks like punctuation, but hey, they're dots. Connect them. And there's all those triangles and that circle and the geographic coordinates. And they, to three decimal places, they're giving you all the most important mathematical constants. So the only p- missing piece of that puzzle was, well, why, is he, why, why is he pointing us to the, you know, how, A, how does he know this? Pi and the golden ratio and, yeah, and root. The square root of three and the square root of two uh, were known then, but he's put constants on there, but nobody knew. Nobody knew for sixty, hundred, two hundred, three hundred years. It, it, it's it, it's ridiculous, right? So, how does he know this? And I I start looking at the Great Pyramid, and that was the start of another, eventually, ultimately, six years' work, which just ended. I finished the 12 years, and that's why I uh, launched this three months ago. I feel safe now that I've got it all. I've got as much as I can possibly find. It's all very, very, very convincing. But the first six years were all these poetic codes, hidden in the Enochian tables, hidden in the poetry of the sonnets, hidden in the grave, the monument, what's written in the grave and the monument. Now he's giving mathematical proof. And the thing about that is that's so wonderful is, okay, he's, he's, he's drawn this circle and these perfect right-angled triangles. And now he starts to tell you in the sonnets themselves what he's doing. Um, in, in other words, sonnet, <laughs> well... The, <laughs> there's, there's 150 
four sonnets, but all scholars say the last two, 153 and 154, shouldn't even be there. They're not part of the whole structure. Why did he put those in? They're very juvenile. And, and not only that, they're the same sonnet uh, written slightly differently. Strange. Why are they there? And I realized that, oh, okay, if, if, if you take those away, you see, 153 is a, what's called a triangular number. If you put a base down of 17 and then 16 on top of that, and then 15, then 14, then 13, all the way up to 1, it adds up to 153. It's called a triangular number on base 17. And the Freemasons are fascinated by triangular numbers and square numbers. And it's clear that whoever was Shakespeare, he's, he was certainly a member of this, this Rosicrucians um, in Hamlet. There's the, these mysterious pair show up. They're called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. No, again, it's sort of a, a non sequitur. What are they doing there? They, they themselves are a mystery. They don't know why they're there. They just know they were called for. And they're called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Well, the Rosicrucians built their entire manifesto on this person called Rosencrantz, the Knight of the Golden Stone. Rosencrantz and Goldenstone and Shakespeare has Rosen, Rosen, sorry, Rosenkreutz, I made a mistake, Rosenkreutz, the Knight of the Goldenstone. He's the founder of the Rosicrucian movement, which eventually became the Freemasons, once it transitioned in 1717 and they came sort of, you know, they came out of hiding. Well, so he's got Rosencrantz and Guildenstern referencing Rosenkreutz and the Golden Stone and nobody know, nobody even talks about it. They don't make the connection because A, they don't want to think there's anything more complex going on here, but he's talking about the Rosicrucian movement. Then that's the people of rank, of high rank who are telling him my deeds must not be shown. They're in this secret society called the Rosicrucians. They become the Freemasons whose main code is IAOM, but he's hinting in Twelfth Night. So literally, it's, he, he's, he's, he's an initiate in this secret society, and he's conveying something that's very, very important. And well, the, well what, the Freemasons are what? They're Masons. They are builders. They, their absolute sacred symbol is the three, four, five triangle. Their sacred god is Pythagoras. Everything about it is all, and, and what? The Great Pyramid of Egypt is on the back of the dollar bill, as we all very well know. And it has, but what, it, what does it have? It has this missing pyramidion on the top. Well, if you build the sonnets up from 17 on the base, and you're sort of mapping the sonnets out as the 17, and then the next ones are 16 and 15, 4, all the way up to the top, you get to 153. And if you take out 153 and 154, he's built an actual pyramid with no pyramidion, with a missing pyramidion. But then he's then there's this one five three and one five four. Why has he done an extra one? It, it sort of spoils it. It should be perfect one five three, but no, they're the same sonnet. Mm -hmm. and, the son, and the sonnet is talking about day and night, sun and moon, light and dark. It's talking about balancing these opposites. That's pure what was called in the Renaissance alchemy and what is now called yoga. In other words, the way you get to this missing eye at the Pyramidion, which is known as the Eye of Horus, the Egyptian tale of Horus, right? And it's the Eye of Horus that is the missing thing. What is Horus's eye? It's, it represents divine providence. It means, it's, and that's what's hovering over the dollar bill pyramid that the 
Some people say it's the pineal gland as well, I think. Exactly, yeah. It's the pineal gland, which which basically is the organ that uh, in the physical body that corresponds to the third eye, or you know the, what's called the kutasta chaitanya center uh, that, that yogis, Vedic yogis, talk about. That by focusing there, you gain enlightenment. You begin to see light, and you begin to balance all the duality of creation. Because create without you know, the moment you have a creation, you've got duality. You've got positive, negative, male, female, light, dark. It's everything is 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 a balance of these two things. And so long as we're focused on the two, we're in creation and we're out of our own natural God consciousness. But if we can balance those two forces and bring our two eye sight up to the third eye, that's how all yogis tell you, that's how I achieved enlightenment. I, I don't want to may put it in Christian terms uh, specifically because all of the all of the scriptures say the same thing. But Jesus says, if if I hold, if I uh, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. It's the same thing in in the Bhagavad Gita. It's the same thing in all the scriptures. Basically, saying you must look to the the beam to the light, and everything becomes oh, you're back to your own true nature, divine consciousness, and. Advanced yogis say, "Yeah, that's where I am. I'm in bliss. I'm, you know, I can, I'm, I'm one with God." And that's what he was saying in Sonnet One Twenty One. He was saying, "I am, and I am." Wow. I so, think he's really saying he's an advanced being. So, what do you, what do you have now that you've sort of opened this whole thing up and you're continuing on with your research? Are you gonna? Do you have another book coming out to summarize this whole thing, or what, what's your plan now besides besides the vote and trying to crack open the altar? Yeah, the main, uh, simply simply put, there's a book out called Decoding Shakespeare, and that's available at Amazon, and, and that's all what I've just told you about at great length on the poetic side, and so you, you'll have a link for that. And then the book about the other half of it, the mathematics, uh, comes out in a few months' time. I've got it finished, but I'm, I'm still editing finally, and that will come out. And that's the other side of it. That's you see what he's saying in poet in 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 the poetic metaphor of he's made the sonnets be the number of uh, of a, a perfect pyramid, and one five three and one five four are balancing light and dark. They're also balancing poetry and mathematics. They are he's saying they're two parts of the one whole human divine person. What is it? Left brain, right brain. It's what? literally it's perfect. You know. So he's saying that's it. So. Sorry, go ahead. What's, what's the next? What's your book called? The one, the next one. Um, I haven't absolutely. This, this Shakespeare equation is that what you're going to call it, or? Uh, no, no, it's uh, I, I've, I, I'm calling it the missing eye, the missing eye. But I'll, I'll, I'll send you something on that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying uh, this is going to be broadcast in two days' time or a week from Friday. Uh, well, we'll see. Probably uh, two weeks. Oh, great. All right. That can be time to. I'm going to Egypt actually on Monday. Oh, I'm going to nice. back to the pyramid. I'm going to the Great Pyramid. Uh, someone's invited, someone from the CPAC conference uh, has invited me over. So, the CPAC conference that I talked about at the beginning is where I finally revealed the mathematical side of it. And it was hugely successful. And the, what I was about to say is that the beauty of it is Shakespeare has given us two sides to it. He's saying there's these two sides, they both need to be balanced. But he knows very well. I mean, ultimately, his natural language is poetry. He's a great poet. But he knows that poetry is subjective. And nothing can be really proven by the poetry. It doesn't matter how uh, we talk about it. I mean, people will say, well, that's your opinion. That's what he means. But it's poetry. In fact, it's why we love 
poetry. It's why we love his poetry. It's why we love his... I mean, he never says anything that has only one meaning. And so if he's saying something... In poetry, you can't say, oh, that proves it. You just can't. So he's put it in mathematics as well, which is absolutely provable. Mm-hmm. Everything that I've got from the mathematic codes is not, there's no argument to it. A kid with a high, a high school kid with an with a iPhone calculator can do, can calculate exactly the same things that I show if he looks at the, the images and find, yeah, yeah, there's all those constants. Wow. You know, it's not arguable. What is arguable is your jaw drops and you go, what? <laughs> how, how did he do this? But you can't argue that it was done. And you can't say, well, it's, it's accidental. By no means is it accidental. Somebody with a high divine sort of consciousness has done this. John Dee was the mathematician and he was the brains, the mathematic brains behind it. But it doesn't mean that Shakespeare didn't know what he was doing. You know, I said the base is 17 and then above that. Well, the sonnets are broken up into uh, and, and universally agreed to be in these sections. The first 17 sonnets are called the procreation sonnets. He's urging the, the fair youth to beget a child. He's on and on and on about it. Every single sonnet, get a kid, get a kid, get a kid, get a kid. In other words, procreate, procreate, procreate. After sonnet 17, he never says another word about it for all the rest. And he starts a new section, the fair youth, uh, uh, his journeys through life. And if you plot it through 16, 15, you know, getting less lines and less lines and less lines up in this pyramid structure, the fair youth sonnets end at sonnet 125, perfectly a level. And then a new final section starts called the Dark Lady sonnets. And then there's these two pyramidian sonnets at the top. It's perfectly worked out to illustrate a pyramid structure. And to give you, I'll only give you one example of how he talks about it poetically when he's really talking about math. Sonnet 17. He says, who will, who will believe my verse in time to come if it were filled with your most high desserts? Okay. What was the most high building in the world at that time? Pyramid. Great pyramid. Where was it? Egypt. In a desert, right? And he said poetically, if it were filled with your most High deserts, though yet heaven knows it is but as a tomb. <laughs> the whole world thinks it's a tomb, but he's he's saying this tongue in cheek. He says, you know, though yet heaven knows it is but as a tomb. In other words, people think it's a tomb, but mm, not really. Which hides your life and shows not half your parts. If I could write the beauty of your eyes and in fresh number, and then he says, and in fresh numbers number all your graces. Graces is an architectural term. Of course, it refers to, you know, grace of God and, and you know, nice, it has another poetic meaning, but it's also an architectural term. It means proportions. Graces means proportions. If I could num- in fresh numbers number all your proportions, well, that's exactly what he's done on the cover of the sun. It's fresh numbers. These are, these are, <laughs> mathematical constants that are not known. And he uses numbers, number. The age to come would say this poet lies, such heavenly touches. And he goes on to this line, he says, and your true rights be termed a poet's rage. True rights. True rights is a Masonic phrase, isn't it? The true right angle. To say that the building is built properly, they say it's true. It's true. Or you say it's right. It's, <laughs> these are Freemason terms. Your true rights he termed a poet's rage. A poet's rage is a perfect anagram of E. Pythagoras. I'm sorry, Pythagoras. That's the precise way his name was pronounced, Pythagoras. E is Latin for of, 
of Pythagoras. In other words, he's, this is, or by, it means both, by Pythagoras. In other words, he's, sh- he's saying, I've shown you on the cover all these things by Pythagoras. And he says, your true rights be termed a poet's rage and stretched mitre of an antique song. Stretched is the very deriva- derivation of is of hypotenuse. It's the Greek hypotieno means to stretch. Hypotieno is hypotenuse. The hypotenuse is stretched across the, the perfect right angle. And mitre is a mitre joint. A joint is it's an architectural term again that means two angles joined together to form a right angle. Hmm. Stretched mitre of an antique song. Antique in those days meant of the Greek uh, period and song. Well, Pythagoras was a mathematician, but he was also known as the person who discovered the ratio, the relationship between music and mathematics. Antique song, and he did it by stretching strings over 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 a, a model uh, that he knew the length of, and then measuring how they vibrated. This is Pythagoras. He's talking all about Pythagoras and right angles in Sonnet Seventeen. So he gives you it poetically, but he's also given it you, you know. No one would even believe that that's what that means. But once you've seen the math, you realize, ah, that's what he's saying. And he knows that the math is unarguable. That's slam dunk. Once that's out, that's slam dunk. So the the mathematic codes added to the poetic codes is simply, I don't think it can be argued. This This is Shakespeare telling us, I know an awful lot more than you think I know. And I'm pointing you. To the Great Pyramid because it has a. I've, I've shown you twelve constants here, and the exact same ones are in the proportions of the Great Pyramid exactly, duplicated exactly. And the world doesn't know that yet. All the world knows is there's pi and phi, and maybe e. There's a whole ton more, and he's delineated them in the sonnets. Now, how will this all happen? That's a huge question. Was it all passed down through secret societies? Probably, you know. Mm. Sounds but, like you got a ton of work too. You could keep decoding for years. On all this stuff, I've, I've just yeah, I've decided to stop because I, I my 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 thrust is you asked what's the point. The point is to say get the vote going and then to get the books out and then to just talk about it and spread the word yeah. because this this is very important. What I feel is most important about it is it's it's not just a, a, you know a, a hypothesis of oh well perhaps he's done it. you know he's actually told us where it is. He's told us look inside the altar. So we have a physical place. We have somewhere to focus our energy. And it not, uh, and it's not just necessarily a poetic thing that he's put in there because he spent just as much effort on the mathematical side and telling us to look in the pyramid. Well, what's in the pyramid? We don't know, but he's telling us, I've left something in the altar that will enlighten you about that. It's what I want you to know. Mm-hmm. To me, that means it, he certainly put some poetic st- stuff in there, but he's Probably, you know, D was instructed to put seven things inside that altar. They're probably mathematical in nature. Who knows what it? I mean, I can only speculate. It might be about free energy. It might be about how they built the pyramids with levitation and anti gravity. I don't know. But it's it's. Say, Posse's gonna know. <laughs> but don't we want to? I mean, that's the question you ask the world. Do, do you want to know? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I mean, I'm gonna vote too. Are you gonna? Or do... We should get some like one of our super smart. Listeners, like maybe James could make a bot that just keeps voting over and over. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but we, yeah, yeah, that could be out. I know you're not serious. Are you, are, you, are you going to any more conferences at all to, to present this information? 
Oh yeah, it, it's starting. It's it's starting. Yeah. I'm going to be giving one as soon as I get back from. Well, I'm going to Egypt on Monday, as I say. This person has invited me uh, to be on this tour. We're going to the we're going to Giza. We'll be there February one, two, three. We're there for uh, eleven days, twelve days altogether. But what we're gonna if this isn't going to broadcast, I'll tell you what we're doing. If this is not going to broadcast until I'm back, I'll tell you what we're doing. Okay. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's not it's not broadcasting this Friday, right? No, it's not this Friday. Because your millions of listeners <laughs> are going to go. <laughs> no, I mean I'm I, I'm sort of serious. So long as it's after I've done after I've got to Egypt, what we're doing in Egypt is the second uh, the second shoe drops. We're taking some. Uh, it's not radar, but it's um, laser measuring devices. And we're going to very accurately, but we've got to do it just like I did for the the the, the, uh, the altar. I've got to do it without being spotted. We're going to be on the Giza plateau. We're going to try and hide this laser thing. Uh, you know, we're going to sit down, put it down on a stable little model, a tiny tripod, and it. What it does is, we'll be about five hundred feet away from the pyramid. We're going to measure precisely the not just the. The points on the side, but you 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 know right that the pyramid is eight sided, not four sided. Yeah, yes. but it's hard to tell now. Well, yeah, you can't tell, and it's only visible when during the the uh, equinoxes, the vernal equinox, and the and the autumn equinox. And it was first discovered in 1937 by an RAF pilot who's flying overhead and he takes a picture and it just happens to be on the equinox at sunset and you see a shadow splitting the side of the great half. And it lasts for about 10, 12 seconds and it's gone. It's only visible from the air, but it it, it indicates that there is, not only did they do the ludicrous hard job of building this pyramid, Right, two point three million stones, weighing two and a half tons each, at least five tons, some eighty tons in the king's chamber, all perfectly aligned to true north, blah blah blah. But can you imagine the guy on the on the <laughs> the builder with his bullhorn saying, uh, "By the way, I I don't want it to be flat on each side. I'd like it to be indented just a tiny, 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 tiny bit." Oh, boss. <laughs> I mean, it's it's ridiculous, right? You all know the math that if they had to quarry and dress and cut and align these stones for 20 years, which the Egyptologists say was the it's time. Like a stone every eight minutes or something, wasn't it? Two, two and a half minutes. That's every right. two and a half minutes. Really? One. Yeah. And that's, if, and that's if it was only just a pile of stones. Forget the passageways, the internal passageways. Forget the king's chamber, the queen's chamber, all that. It's just if you're piling stones on stones, it would take 20 years doing one every two and a half minutes. It's ludicrous. So because that's not possible, they then add another lie. they add another lie to it. Oh, 100,000 slaves. Well, my question to that is, okay, have you ever tried to organize 10 people? I mean, I mean where are the porta potties? I mean, imagine it. <laughs> A hundred thousand? No, yeah, a hundred thousand. A hundred thousand slaves. That's that makes it possible. No, it doesn't. It's, it's ludicrous. Anyway, anyway, it's all done with copper chisels and balls of stone. So, what are you so, guys going to scan? So, we're going to scan this indent. It needs to be at 
actually perfectly, perfectly measured, which I don't think it has ever been done. And we can do it with this little piece of, uh, of a laser measure. It's like it's, it's fabulous piece of equipment. We've, we've bought it here. We've tested it. Uh, it's pretty expensive, but you, it's, it, it, you, you take it. So long as nobody sees us because the guards are on the lookout for anybody with a tripod, they don't want – obviously, they're on heightened alert for – Security, terrorism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we've got to get on the. We've got uh, some two locals who are going to bring us on the plateau, and they'll talk and you know tell the story so that we get passed on to the plateau. That should be no problem. But then we've got to erect this thing and quickly take these measurements of the west side and the east side and and measure precisely what that angle of indentation is because I've already done the math on it, and but I need proof. So, so this laser measures to the side, like you can shoot it to the end of the pyramid and then it also shoots to the side or something like that. So you can measure the indentation. No, what you do is you shoot to the left, left corner and then the right corner. Well, you do it in order. You do the left corner and then the absolute center. You've got to be, uh, got to be know where the center is, even though we can't see it visually, but we could, this thing will measure it to tell us that. So we know where the center is. Then we point to the center and then we point to the right and it will measure an angle, whatever that angle is, instead of it being a straight line, it's a very, 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 very tiny, tiny, tiny angle, right? It's just indented a tiny bit. It will tell you what that angle is, which then tells me the mathematics of how far indented it is. And I've already worked out the mathematics within a certain uh, tolerance. And if it's what I think it is, which it pretty much has to be, then it's a perf. Then I know the reason it's an eight-sided pyramid. Huh. It's, math- it's mathematically perfect to give us something uh, of that, that you can't do with just one pyramid angle. The pyramid angle, as it is, fifty-one point eight four three degrees, gives you all these all these constants: pi, phi, e, Euler-Mascheroni constant, all the ones that are not so far known, but Shakespeare told us is there. All of them there, exactly as they are delineated on the sonnet's cover. But then it also the, there's something else that needs to. I, mean, I actually spoke about it in the CPAC talk. It's about a constant of measure. It, it links feet and cubit and meters together. It tells you that these are not random measurements. Mm-hmm. The, foot, the foot and the cubit together is actually the structure of E. If you've got one foot, then the cubit is 1.718 feet, and it together is 2.718. That is E. That is the actual structure of Euler's number. And then cubit and meter together, cubit is, if you have a circle with a radius of a meter, uh, a 30-degree angle cutting off to the side, that arc of that circle, which is exactly a twelfth of the circumference of the circle, is pi over six. That shows you that cubits, the royal cubits that we used, and the meter are connected mathematically. And it shows you that feet and cubits are connected mathematically. And it then shows you that if you double it back around, the meter and the cubit together are equal to five feet to an, a tolerance of almost five decimal places. I mean, it's off by 0.00004 of a feet. That's the width of a red blood cell. It's literally so there's a, there's a mathematical purity to this. And so, but I showed that at CPAC, and then I said, you know, there's all, there's one place that it is hidden, and it's hidden in that indent. That's why they built it with an indent. Well, it's all very well for me to say that, but I can't prove it unless I can show the measurements accurately. So I'm wow. going there to do another heist, and when it's done, yeah, great. 
Well, don't don't get caught because I mean, it should, too bad it wasn't the '90s where when I back when I used to smoke doobies, I smoked one on the pyramid. Did you know that, Darren? Yeah, yeah, I told you once. Ten yeah. times, and we didn't get caught. So, did you actually climb it? Yeah, yeah. Climb. To the top? No, not to the top. No. We'll see. No, no it's no. way bigger than you expect. It's like climbing yeah, up oh. would be difficult. Okay. Yeah, plus being stoned wouldn't probably be the best idea. On no, the no. it gets pretty but, freaky up there because you can't even climb up on the stone. The stones are so big, you can hardly even scramble up there. Oh, sure, yeah. Wow, yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's not that free now. You can't climb on it at all, and they're on the watch out for that. But we think we've got a good, we've got a good chance of doing it, and we're, we're going to go for it. And once we've done it, then I've got the actual scientific proof of the measurement, and I pretty sure I know that it will vindicate what I've already tested mathematically. I just have to be able to prove it. And if it's there, then what it, the reason for that indent, I believe, is to show the absolute precise mathematical connection between foot, cubit, and meters, which is big, you know, because they, 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 they said, well, come on, meters. <laughs> they didn't know meters. They yeah, didn't know. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that meters is in there, too, because that's... The meters or yards? No, he says meters. Meters, right. foot, and cubits. Huh. The, the actual systems of measure, feet, the imperial, un, imperial units, um, cubits, the <laughs> biblical unit, and, and meters, the French unit. On the other hand, how do you deal with the system? Sorry, what? The metric system. Le système métrique. But how do you deal with this? If you place a pin in Google Earth on the absolute dead center of the Great Pyramid, it tells you the latitude is 29.9792458 degrees. 29.9792458 is the speed of light in meters per second. Hmm. Meters. Huh. Me? So, well, I mean, if, maybe that meters was, maybe that's the way the metric system started is through the, the meter and the correlations to the old system. What, what is it, like 2.97 billion meters a second? 2.9979245.8. That's 299,792,458 meters per second is the speed of light. And oh, yeah, the, that's right, because it's 300,000 kilometers a second. Right. And the pyramid is built on the latitude that is that same number, two. 29.9792458 degrees. It means if they'd built the pyramid, what, a centimeter, maybe a, a, few, a couple of inches further north, further south, it would not give that number. That's crazy. And they didn't even have fucking latitude and longitude when they built it, so. Well, they didn't There's have that. a longitude. Right, they didn't have the longitude in Shakespeare's time when he tells it you exactly. So When's longitude, you know, latitude, like 1600s? No, latitude was known already in the, in the 1500s, but longitude didn't get absolutely slam-dunk reliable until somewhere in the late 1700s, I believe. I right. may be off on that, but, but it's certainly well at 150 years after Shakespeare. But John Dee, but you see, again, this is another connection to John Dee. John Dee had written that he, well, he, had, he, he had solved it. He, had, he told Queen Elizabeth he had solved longitude uh, before... Galileo even was starting to work on it, but uh, even he was his 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 uh, tests were not implemented for some reason. But you know, I mean, he was he was a brilliant, brilliant mind, a fabulous polymath of his era, and he was partners with the real Shakespeare. There's absolutely, no doubt about it. 
that's what he did to uh, to, to help. First. Yeah. Well, let us know how that that uh, yeah, yeah. laser measuring comes out for sure. I will. I'll. Yeah. I'll. Uh, uh, well, I was I was going to say I'll email you guys, but you don't. I guess you don't do email particularly as your prime mode motive, uh, mo- mode of communication. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Can, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll tell you what. Email, email email Graham instead of Darren, and you'll get a response a little quicker. Because I don't. Oh, you mean Graham at same thing? Graham, yeah, Prime yeah, America? yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Oh, well, thank got, you, Darren. I, sorry. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> My life is run by people that are less than a meter tall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, revolve them. Actually, Madison <laughs> might be almost. Yeah, right. Okay, so um, I think that that's that's uh, that's it. Folks. Yeah, that was I mean, awesome. Until you get back from Egypt, anyway. I mean, we might have to do another one of these sooner than later. Yeah, what an interesting journey! Wow. I mean, we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes as well. Thank you. I'll I'll send you an email with all of that the links because obviously I can, I'll I'll just you know I I'll need to write them you know need them, uh, because I could, I don't know them offhand but essentially the only one people need to know is the is the uh, website but the YouTube links uh, etc I'll send them and then they can get into deep as they want. Right Absolutely, all uh, that is in the show wait, notes right this, now. This what? Oh, people are listening. It'll be in the show notes. All I have to do is swipe right. I don't actually know. If swipe down, swipe down. I think you swipe down. <laughs> and my, actually, no in the pod idea, player, I know I use you. Don't swipe. I'm good oh, with codes. I'm not very down. good with uh, social media. But anyway, um, oh, no, this has been fun. It. This is great. Thank you, guys. Yeah, All right, thanks, thanks a bunch, Alan. Yeah, and good luck in Egypt. And uh, we hope to hear from you soon. Hold on. Let's just put the put the camera on just quickly so we can wave bye bye. Uh, my camera's on. Glad to see you guys. It's coming. It's coming. You You have a studio in in Calgary, is it? Just outside of Calgary, yeah. In a garage. That's the igloo, right? That's the igloo, yeah. (laughs) Not too many people have seen the igloo. see how we're wearing... Tukes and sweaters because it really is cold in here. <laughs> no, I don't see it. I, your picture's not up. Never mind. It doesn't matter. Oh, I just wanted to uh, wave by. I, I wanted to see to that doobie you were smoking. There it was. I, I, <laughs> oh, it's gone again. Huh. That just keeps shutting All right. off. All right, um, Al. Well, thanks a lot, eh, Alan. You're welcome, guys. It was it was it was great, and uh, I I look forward to. It. I'm gonna t- now that I know when it will be. If you know for sure it's Friday, I'm gonna post some all the. You know, it's bizarre, but I still have all these monkeys fans writing to me, and they are there. There's a lot of them. I mean, there's thousands of them still. I mean, they still believe that it's the most. You know, that this is the best group in the world, and and they are very loyal. And for some reason or other. I'm their connection because I wrote two of the monkeys' books, and and so it's very nice, really. Uh, it's a nice resource. I believe they'll probably all tune in. So right I want to let them know exactly when it will be on because they'll they'll want to hear the monkeys part but anyway. But I think they'll be interested in the rest too. Right on, absolutely. So it'll be next Friday, the third. Oh, exactly. Great. That's the day we finish on the Giza Plateau, and then we shift across. We go to Luxor and some other things as well. Excellent. So that's, perfect. Uh, that's absolutely perfect. 
I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> thanks Alan. Alan. Okay. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was our chat with Alan Green. And, uh, yeah, you know, that one kind of came out of left field. I really didn't know what to expect, but that was a fun one. Yeah, that was good. Seriously, like, check out that altar. Yeah, absolutely. UK Posse. You never UK know. UK Posse. Like, you guys got to go bash that there motherfucker. Is a, there is a huge cavity in the altar, right? And that synchronicity you is... You might go to jail. <laughs> At least really, you'll go, you go to hell. For you're sure. really taking one for the team here. <laughs> You go to hell for Shakespeare? Isn't it Shakespeare? No, it's a ch- you're destroying church property and stuff, right? I mean, <laughs> it's trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I mean, there's some pretty crazy synchronicities. In Don't there. Like, do that, that stuff. Can't just happen. We're not advocating someone to go break the signal. Yeah. If yeah. you if you decide to do that, you do that of your own volition. Yeah. That is pretty crazy stuff, though. That's all those, wild. All yeah, those dates lining one. up and the years and the numbers and. Almost three hours uninterrupted. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, check out. Uh, big thanks to Alan for coming on the show. Of course, you guys go swing over to grimeamerica.ca slash support and check out all the different ways you can. Yeah, one more thing. You can see the video of that altar, uh, that heist uh, on his website. Like, they documented it. It's You'll pretty cool. It in the show notes. Yeah. That's it. Okay. You really fucked the segue there. I know, sorry. <laughs> so anyway, guys, check out grimeamerica.ca slash support for all the... Uh, different monthly options or one-time donation options that you can help us uh, keep having these uninterrupted chats by shitty commercials and stuff like that um of course you can help with the show a bunch of other ways spam gram review the show rate the show tell your friends about the show and uh make jokes about james's mom all right guys thanks for listening and we will see you next week
doesn't have to be a snowman. Oh, wait, Anna. Okay, bye. Do you want a snowman? Or ride our bike around the hall? I suddenly see him standing there. A beautiful stranger, tall and fair. I want to stuff some in my face. But then we fuck all evening, which is totally bizarre. What am I looking at right now? Why are you hanging off the earth like a bat? I'm Anna. And who's the donkey over there? That's Sven. Uh-huh. And who's the reindeer? Sven. Can I say something crazy? <laughs> Will you me? Can I say something even crazier? Yes! May I you, please? Alone? No. <sighs> Wandering Oaken's f***ing post. Ooh, and sauna. She someone else, okay? <laughs> of course I don't want to her anymore. In fact, this whole thing has ruined me for anyone ever again. But people better than reindeers. Sven, don't you think I'm right? That's true for all except you you got me let's call it a night all men do it ew cuties i'm gonna you if they make you laugh if they make you cry if they blow your mind why not go online to grimerica.ca slash support